Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Uh, today is Wednesday, July 8th, 2020, starting at 1.30 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 262nd episode of the show. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Kathy Rose and Basil Farrington about the life and work of the late astrologer Noel Till. Uh, so, hey, welcome to the show, guys. Thanks, Chris. Well, Happy to be here. Thank you, Chris, and definitely always happy to to be um, in a intelligent astrology discussion. Yeah, so we've got a lot to to talk about. We, you are both. We're going to be talking about uh, Noel Till, who was a major astrologer who just passed away last year. He died on December thirty first, twenty nineteen, on uh, his birthday. He turned eighty three years old. And he was one of the most prolific astrologers of the late 20th and early 21st century. Um, I know back when I was first getting into astrology in the early 2000s, his online forum, his discussion forum on his website was very active, and his books and his teachings through that website were one of my early influences. Um, I almost did an interview with him last October that uh, another astrologer, Matthew, we met was trying to arrange and set up, but it didn't end up coming through. And then uh, Noel passed away just a few months later, so I always regretted not having gotten that interview. So I wanted to sort of make amends for that today by doing this interview with two of his main students who continue to, to teach and promote his methods, which are Basil and, and Kathy. So I wanted to start first by just introducing each of you to my audience, and maybe just briefly touching on um, what your background is and your connection is with Noel in general. So, Basil, you connected with Noel way back in like the mid 1970s, right? Yeah. Um, as a story goes, which is one of, that I love telling, um, I'm a musician, professional musician, been professional musician since I was 17 or so, and uh, born and raised in Philadelphia. The group that I was I was working in a, a band, a uh, jazz band, and uh, we had a rehearsal. I had to leave Philadelphia and get up to New York in time. I had an option whether I wanted to get there an hour late or an hour early. So obviously, we're going to get there an hour early. I had been reading about a place called the New York Astrology Center, which was Fifth Avenue, Midtown in the 40s or something like that. I figured I'll get up there an hour early. And I go to the New York Astrology Center and maybe walk out with a, a bag full of great astrology books. So I walk in and I walk over to the, the books and I see what I saw was books by Noel Tile, right? That's, that okay. was my, my first. And I'm looking through them and I, holy cow. And it was the, uh, his 12 volume series. So that day I walked out with the 12 volume series, all, all 12 volumes, and started reading wow. them ob obsessively. Mm -hmm. And I made it a point that, you know, I got to meet this guy. I got to uh, see how he does what he does. So uh, I wasn't able to get to him until the next year. What I did was I wrote to Llewellyn and I said, I wanted a, a consultation with Noel, with Noel Tile. So mm -hmm. um, they arranged it. And I ne never forget when I called him, I said, hello, my name is Basil Farrington. I'm calling for Noel Tile. And he said, my name is Noel Till. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, mad embarrassed. Oh, right. I messed, messed up already. 
But yeah. in any case, uh, had a consultation a month later and we hit it off. Um, and he sort of left the door open for me to ask questions. I would either call him or send mail. You know, there was no Wi-Fi or anything like that back then. And for years, that's what I did. If I saw something in a book that I had a question about, I would call him or write to him. He would get back to me. And then things started to fast forward in the 90s when I got my, uh, I started to get articles published and so forth. And he allowed me to be part of two of his Llewellyn books that were series books that, that, that had uh, lots of astrologers in them. One of them. He had me write the introduction to it was the first time that anybody ever wrote an introduction to a Noel Till book. So uh, I was really, really honored that he believed in me that much. So that that was my my start with Noel. And of course, in 1998, he asked me to relocate to South Africa and I taught the the Till method uh, in Johannesburg for a year. Right. And you authored uh, The New Way to Learn Astrology, which was- Supposed to be like an introductory text to his methods and his approach. That that book, uh, we were sitting out uh, on top of sort of like a mountain uh, resort area, and he said, "Well, Basil, we'll have to uh, have a discussion here about this book you're going to write for our students. <laughs> this book I'm going to write. Yes, you're going to write a book." I'll watch over it for you, and but you're going to write it, and Llewellyn will accept it. It's done. Do it. So Amazing. I did. Nice. Wow. Um, and yeah, and I was just rereading that last night. It's actually a really great introduction. Um, I want to circle back and actually ask you more questions about that later, but I think that sets sure. up pretty well that you've been you had that connection with him since the 1970s, and then you Wrote the introduction to one of his books and collaborated, and then wrote that book explicating some of his methods. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Kathy, um, what is your background in astrology, and when did you uh, first start collaborating with Noel? Well, I actually started studying astrology when I was eight, so very young, and I, in a way, I sort of just remembered it, which. If you're not a spiritual person or open to that, that may sound pretty crazy, but that's how it was. So I started reading books, eight, nine years old, following kids around at school, profiling them and taking notes astrologically. Um, And I continued studying and then started my private practice professionally, earning my entire living in Denver at 24, and have done that ever since, earned my living from astrology. And when I started having babies in 91, I had two children, and I decided being a mom was incredibly important. My career was going great guns at that point in the late 80s and early 90s. I was book solid, and I was doing, I was really happy. I was doing really well. But as a lot of women do when they make a decision to have children, you put part of your career in the background. So for a while there, I put it slightly in the background, then we moved to Virginia Beach. I still had not met Noel at that point, had not ever even read a book, had not ever had an astrology teacher, mostly self-taught. So when we moved to Virginia Beach um, in 2000, it was the first trip I ever made away from my children. I went back to Astro 2000, and I met Basil there. He doesn't remember it, but I met him. And I remember I had solar arc. (laughs) Yeah. 
I cornered you. I just about well, took you by the collar asking you these intense questions. You looked panic and ran. <laughs> <laughs> because I had solar arc mercury on my midheaven. And I said, why isn't my career going great guns? Well, one of the till theories that is so absolutely right is when a woman steps into motherhood and steps out of career a bit, the horoscope doesn't respond in the same way, which was true for me. I was still very committed to being a mother first, career second, but very conflicted about it because I enjoyed my career so much. So I still hadn't met Noel then. I attended one of his lectures, came back to Virginia Beach, and in 2005, decided to contact him, went to his forum, started looking at the vocational profiling, and decided I was going to try him out as a teacher. And the way I did that was I called him and said, I want to schedule you to Virginia Beach, and I want to organize a seminar, and I'll bring the participants. You show up and teach. And he said, fine. We did that in October of 2005. And then December of 2005, I was signed up for his course, went to my first um, student seminar that he hosted yearly in January of 2006. And then it just went from there. Um, shortly after that, I talked him into doing the DVDs, and then he made me his teaching assistant, and that's where it went. Right. So your husband does like video production, and mm -hmm. you... Um, had you talked and you tried actually for like a year or two to talk Noel into filming a series mm -hmm. for his his master course to get some of his methods on tape mm -hmm. using like high quality video and audio production and eventually mm -hmm. you did it and that took what a series of like three trips. It took three trips having him out here to Virginia Beach. We had great fun um, spending time with him in our home. And it did take me two years. Good thing I'm persistent because he kept saying no, and I just kept hammering away until I got my way. And um, he was wonderful. He's such a great performer. All we had to do literally was turn on the camera and shoot. And we had great fun, great fun. And we've sold the DVDs all over the world. Um, it's like inviting Noel into your living room. So it's a good thing. Brilliant. All right. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think that's a great starting point then in terms of both of your connections and perspective with him. Um, so what I want to do in this discussion in this episode today is I want to first start by talking and outlining a bit about Noel's biography and, and his background in astrology and his life and work. And then I also want to get into, though, um, his approach to astrology and what makes it distinctive and unique as a, a modern astrologer and as an approach that was crafted and taught to students in the late 20th and early 21st century. Uh, does that sound like a plan to you guys? Perfect. Sounds good. Cool. All right. So um, I want to start first with uh, Noel's birth data. So he was born on December 31st, 1936 at 3.57 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in Westchester, Pennsylvania. And I want to put up a copy of his chart. What is what was Noel's preferred system of house division? He was a Placidus guy. Placidus. Okay. Um, so here, let me just share. And this is using my own layout, but hopefully it'll suffice for our purposes for the most part. So he had um, zero degrees of Cancer rising on the ascendant, or that that's. What that time gives, and I don't know if that's from his birth certificate or if it was rectified. But 
obviously there would be a little bit of a question initially if an astrologer just first glanced at this chart about whether the native had 29 Gemini rising or whether they had zero Cancer rising. But there's probably pretty good reason to believe that um, he had Cancer rising. I believe, right? Absolutely. And, and why he is that? He, he would he would cry at a if a TV commercial had emotion in it. He would cry. Mm-hmm. He would, he would express emotion, uh, heartfelt at you name it. He is a very, very emotional guy. Now, of course, it would be when you hear him speak, it would be easy to start thinking in terms of Gemini communications and, and all of that stuff. But there's no question when you get to know him, there's no question about the, the cancer ascendant. Well, and the other thing is he treated the students like a family. And that's uh, why there are so many students, so many people have taken his course who have such incredible loyalty to him because we became a family and that's the cancer rising. And Basil, are you thinking what I'm thinking when you look at this chart that Noel would not be pleased that that midheaven is not Absolutely. at crosshairs <laughs> with the midhe- with the ascendant. He was really big for, you know, the crosshairs of the angles. Yeah, midheaven at noon and yeah. all of the houses uh appearing <laughs> equal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sorry about just, that. I'm usually Oh no, out. I mean it's just a sign point. house guys, so this is just set up mm-hmm. using the default, but I switched it to Placidus, so it's not mm-hmm. showing the degrees of the angles. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things, the other thing obviously about his ascendant though, is that if it's Cancer rising, then the ruler of the ascendant is the moon, which yes. is placed at 27 degrees of Leo. Um, not too far. Astrologers, okay, and not too far from the fixed star Regulus. Um, but that's one of the things that stands out to me is that when you See this guy, or when you meet this guy, um, he has this voice, this very deep baritone voice, and he's also he was a big guy, right? He was like six foot nine 11. or something, or six 11. six foot seven, 11. six foot eleven. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so he was very mm-hmm. sort of a tall and imposing figure, not just physically, but also in terms of his um, his voice, um, mm-hmm. which everybody. Always attempts to imitate, but it's very hard to like do a good imitation of a Noel Till voice because it's just so deep and, and sort of commanding. Yes, yep. his um, moon in Leo in that position afforded him incredible authority and command whenever he wanted it, wherever he was. Yes. Um, and here's a picture of him, just really quick for people watching the video version. I think this is his old headshot that. That you sent me, Kathy. That's on the back of many of his books. Mm-hmm. His favorite picture of forever. Okay, and then just back to the chart, just to read off some of the positions for those that are just listening to the audio version of this um, episode. So he has zero Cancer rising. The Moon is at twenty-seven Leo. Um, he had the Sun and Jupiter and Mercury in Capricorn, uh, Venus in Aquarius. Saturn in Pisces at 17 degrees of Pisces, opposite to Neptune at 18 degrees of Virgo. Mars was at 27 Libra. Uh, Uranus was at 5 degrees of Taurus. He had Pluto at 28 Cancer, opposite to Mercury at 29 Capricorn. And the nodes were at 24 degrees of Sagittarius as the North Node and 24 Gemini as the South Node. Um, And then finally, I guess the degree of his midheaven looks like it's at about 7-ish degrees of Pisces. Yes, 702. Can I jump in and say something right here real quick? 
Sure. Last night, I did a Zoom class for a lot of the TIL students, um, and it was entitled All Things Venus. And I use Noel's chart as an example in that because he has Venus um, opposing his moon. And, you know, when Venus is so strong like that, many times there is great charm. There's great magnetism. So in addition to his moon being in Leo in the third house, ruling the ascendant, Venus just brought about such great magnetism and charm, and he would smile and light up the room, and he could get sometimes anything he wanted when he would do that, because Venus would light up. Mm. So it was on my mind. I just talked about it last night in that class. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk a little bit about his his life. So early on, early in his life, he excelled academically and athletically, and he ended up being accepted to, and he ended up going to Harvard. So he, he did well enough in school that he went to a prestigious university. Um, there he got really interested in and became developed his first career as an opera singer, which lasted for something like 20 years of his life, right? Right. Okay. And um, I guess he did a bass baritone, he was a bass baritone opera singer in the 60s and 70s, and he traveled all over the world uh, singing at different opera houses. He lived in Germany, and uh, he was a specialist in the works of Wagner. He was Wotan, queen of, or king of the gods. Yeah. Okay. And mm -hmm. so um, I might try, I can't do it right now, but I might play a little clip just so you can hear his voice and him introducing mm -hmm. himself, like at some of the, the videos that you recorded with him, Kathy, just to give you some idea of how deep his voice was, because as an opera singer, you have to be able to fill up the entire auditorium and have it so people in the very back of it can hear you just through the power of your own voice, and that was something that he, he, he could do. Absolutely. Easily. <laughs> the profession is large enough to encompass different fields. There's the field of research, for example, and I'm not a good researcher. Then there's the field of analysis. And I believe I am a strong artist analyst. Um, so he's an opera singer. He's doing that for like 20 years, very early in his life. And then sometime during that, I think he did meet his wife relatively early on, right? Is the very first one? Yeah. Okay. There, there were uh, there were three. I, I I never met the first one. Uh, I don't even know her first name. The second one was Hololi Richter, and of course she passed away some years ago. Okay. Um. Yeah, I was a little un unclear about that, and that was one part I was having trouble with with the biography. But um, I did figure out that he became aware of astrology sometime after college. At the age of 28, which would have been during his Saturn return, approximately, right? That's something that I can't. Uh, I don't know. I'm okay. not sure about the, the the age of of the beginning. Okay. Um, I think I was reading in one interview that he said 28, so uh, it should have been around that time period. And he was living in New York. And in an interview that Kathy has from the DVD series, and this video is up on YouTube, it's like 45 minutes, it's really interesting talking about his life 
It's titled Till Unfiltered, a revealing conversation with astrologer Noel Till. Um, he says he tells a story about how he was watching TV at one point and he saw an interview interviewer named David Suskind who was like dismantling a few astrologers, like three or four astrologers on TV one day. And he said, despite the sort of poor performance of the astrologers and that they weren't doing a great job defending themselves, he thought there might be something to it and he wanted to find out. So he went right then with his wife to a local occult bookstore in New York City that was run by the famous astrologer named Zoltan Mason. And have you guys heard this story before? Oh, a thousand yeah, times. <laughs> a thousand, <laughs> a thousand times? Okay. times, yes. So this is like a legendary story. And Zoltan mm -hmm. Mason himself was a legendary figure because he's been mentioned by a number of astrologers. I I remember I did a episode on Robert Zoller, who also passed away just a few months ago. And I did an episode on him and played an old interview I did with him. And he also mentioned going to Zoltan Mason's bookstore in New York City and buying astrology and occult books there. And Zoltan Mason was this um, Hungarian Slovakian who immigrated to New York City in 1948. And um, apparently, Noel Till went there to this bookstore and he sort of engaged Mason in what sounded like a somewhat skeptical discuss discussion mm -hmm. initially about astrology, right? Like he kind of was interested, but he was also kind of like challenging him or or something like that. Yeah, he just wanted he Noah, I don't know to this day, I don't know whether or not he was joking or not, but as the story goes, he said, uh, uh Mr. Mason, you don't want me it was some Mason said something that uh like you could be a great astrologer, that's what it was. And Noel said, "You just want me to buy a bunch of your books. That's all." And you know, as the story goes, uh, Zoltan said, "I don't see it in you. I see it in your horoscope." Right. He told yeah. him, uh, Noel that he could be a great astrologer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounded like a really impressive encounter. Where initially it was like Noel was asking him sort of skeptical questions, like. What happens? Surely not everybody's birth chart indicates that they'll die if there's a major disaster or something like that. And he's kind of poking him a little bit. And then Mason correctly inferred that Till was a Capricorn and that his wife was a Pisces, which was true. And Till says he was reasonably impressed and he bought two books and then went home and learned how to calculate his birth chart by hand. So this is in like the 1970s. He would have had to at that point. Or actually, it might have been the 1960s. But um, he later was interested enough and started getting into astrology and went back and set up a consultation with Mason. And he wasn't particularly impressed by the consultation, but he did say that Mason said a few solid things about his life that were reasonably correct. And as the consultation was winding down, um, Mason said something that stuck with him and that he repeated for the rest of his life, which is he said, you could become a very fine, famous astrologer. You can be a great teacher in astrology. And Till says that this is more or less verbatim because he has he had the recording. Um, and Till replies, like you said, Basil, that Mason, you just want me to buy your astrology books or something like that. And Mason replies, No, Noel, I don't see it in you. I see it in your horoscope. And that really stuck with him for some reason. And subsequently, it was actually ironically somewhat true because he subsequently did buy hundreds of books 
from Mason, and he ended up moving away from New York and going to Germany uh, following his opera career. But there, he would have those books even shipped from Mason in New York to Germany, um, and kept buying books and getting more and more into astrology. Uh, so that seems like his initial connection and his initial starting point that he was just buying astrology books, and he ended up being self-taught just through reading these books on his own, which is kind of unique then that he was a self-taught astrologer rather than somebody who had a teacher or a mentor. Exactly. And a lot of those books he bought from Zoltan Mason. I have in my library now because I have Noel's library, and it was just incredible to open it up and see his that store stamped on the inside of the books. It, it's just wonderful. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah, and I've heard like Robert Zuller buying books there. I know Robert Corey mm -hmm. had a connection with Zoltan Mason and got into the work of uh, Morinus, uh, John Baptiste Morin, Morin as a result of that. And I think I've even heard of like Rob Hand mentioning going to Zoltan Mason's bookstore and buying books there. So it seemed like a pretty Important place, and Noel told him. Noel actually tells this funny story in that that Till Unfiltered video about. Then you know he would move all over the world and all over the country, and then eventually, um, one day he was in New York doing a book tour, and this must have been in the late two thousand, late nineteen nineties or early two thousands, and he tried to look up the bookstore, but the bookstore was closed and had been closed for many years. And Mason was in his 90s by that point, but Noel was able to track him down and called him up on the phone. And they met up one last time, and they met at Mason's apartment. And when Noel went in, he saw that his the shelves were lined with books, and that he had a bunch of Noel's own books on his shelves. And when he's telling that story, I think to you, Kathy, he sort of tears up at mm -hmm. how moving that was to him as, you know, that's where he got his start. And then seeing the guy that his first astrology reading, that he, the guy that he got his first reading from or consultation from, had all of his books lining his shelves and they mm -hmm. still had that connection after all those years. Full circle. Yes. Yeah. So that's brilliant. And then Mason died, he said, only a year or two later, which would have been in the year 2002. So um, Noel was self-taught. Um, his first book was titled Astrology as Identity, and that was published in 1973. And part of one of the things that was interesting, he must have written that while he was in Germany, and he submitted it to Llewellyn, which was a astrology publisher based out of St. Paul, Minnesota. And he tells a story in one interview about how impressed they were when they received the manuscript that they invited him to come out and they had some sort of meeting and they published that book and it ended up being successful and it launched a very not just successful career for Noel as a as an author and writer of more than 30 astrology books by the end of his life but also a great cooperation between Noel and Llewellyn Publishing who he published all of his books with yes you have to remember Noel was a Capricorn Sun conjunct Jupiter in the seventh house. And not only was he very friendly and outgoing, but he was also very strategic. Mm. So he made good friends with um, Weshki and they hit it off and they were best buddies for many, many years. Yeah, it sounds like he ended up moving to St. Paul and he lived 
next to the owner of Llewellyn um, yep. pub- Publishing at that point, who was mm-hmm. Carl Llewellyn Wischke. Mm-hmm. And I have this quote from so Noel ended up publishing 30 books in his life, um, lived in St. Paul, and had like a connection at one point with Carl Llewellyn Wischke. And I have a quote from him that says, Noel can write a book in a couple of months or so. And some of his books were written really fast. Like he would just take it all what was in his mind and put it in paper very, very quickly, evidently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He did, uh, he told me that he did uh, his <clears throat> epic tome, Synthesis and Counseling in Astrology. <laughs> he described to me four, four or five days of getting up, not brushing his teeth, sitting there at the, at, at the computer typing. And that book has, I don't know what, 700 pages in it or something. And he did it in less than a week. Wow. It, yeah. It's, it's, like, a, it's absolute, like a thousand absolutely. page, like thick book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's more like 1100 pages. Is it? Okay. I think, I don't know. I'm, my microphone is sitting on two copies of it right here on my desk, but I'm not okay. going to move it to look. Right. Um, I love that. So yeah, so he, he that was his main book, and it's one of his largest books. And yeah, he was reputed to have written it in in a week. He said that's really yeah. crazy. And his course course was modeled uh, after synthesis and, and counseling. And he did he he wrote the course up real fast. I remember he he called me one day and told me he had an idea about uh, creating a course. And then like a week later, it was done. Mm. Boy. Okay, so he had initiative and he got stuff done. And his first series that he started with Llewellyn back in the 1970s was the Principles and Practice of Astrology, which was 12 volumes. And that was the set that was his first set, and that's the one that you said that you walked out with um, when when you first uh, came across his work, right? Yeah, that's it. There was a the the volume that I went to initially was volume five, which is was the first time that I saw ever saw any uh, deep psychological references to anything in astrology. And I have in my horoscope uh, uh, Singleton Mars in the eleventh house. All I ever heard from astrologers was you're going to be contentious with friends, and you're going to attract people in the military, and and you know all of the standard schlock. And mm-hmm. I'm not a contentious person. If you act up with me, I simply turn you into Casper the ghost. You don't exist anymore. I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to fight or, or get get silly. He had an explanation in that book uh, for the 11th house. And for the first time, at that point, I had been reading books for seven years or so. For the first time, like, wow, now that makes sense. And then mm-hmm. I started looking at all the other horoscopes. Uh, that had 11th house emphasized. And for the first time, I could make sense of of stuff when I couldn't make sense of friends, hopes, and wishes. Mm. Somebody has Saturn in the 11th house, what's that have to do with hopes and wishes? I never understood it. But after reading reading that little bit in that chapter, I said, oh man, this is brilliant. And that's where I got the whole series. You know, you bring up a good point, Basil, because that 11th house orientation that he came forward, that theory that he proposed changed my life too. Mm. Um, So he focused on the fifth house being love given, 
the ability to re- to express love in the 11th house about lovability and your ability to receive love. So his theory was if the 11th house ruler was under high developmental tension, or if a planet in the 11th house was under high developmental tension, then there were perhaps the suggestions of lovability issues, needing to work on that as your life purpose. And that was revolutionary and absolutely crystal clear changed the direction of my astrology, that one point right there. Yep. It's amazing. Brilliant. So part of it, and this will start getting us into um, the next section about his approach, but it's probably fine if we go there at this point, but it seemed like part of his focus was um, a move towards humanistic astrology. Um, and he was motivated by an interest in psychology, especially developmental psychology, um, as well as a desire to modernize astrology. And part of his background from Harvard was being influenced by psychological need theory that was taught by a professor named Henry Murray. Um, but I guess this also goes back to like Laszlo's hierarchy of needs and things like that. But that was sort of a cornerstone, it seemed like, of his psychological approach in some sense, right? Absolutely. It was definitely uh, that need theory changed. It, it, it was another major thing that changed everything for me because, you know, when you start and you, you read the books that are available, you know, it's mostly cookbooks. And it ends up being the, the few astrologers that I saw. Uh, before I met Noel, it was all look at the horoscope, and your son is in the seventh house, and that means this. And your son is squared by Saturn, and that means this. And, and it's it's an astrology lesson. It's not a discussion about your life. When he came along, just adding that one word, need, Mercury and Cancer. No, you don't think emotionally. You need to think in terms of emotional security. That changes everything. You're not mm-hmm. confining a person's life to what you think you know about astrology. And that, that happens all too often that uh, you know somebody who's been studying astrology books for two or three years will read something in a book. And then every time they see that in the horoscope, they just automatically anoint that person with whatever that meaning is. And right. it just doesn't that doesn't work because a hundred people with the exact same horoscopes are not going to be the same person. You know, one could have been a farmer in New Zealand. The other one could have been born to Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie or, you know, whatever the case may be. But uh, the idea that he came up with is that uh, you have to apply the horoscope to the life of the person living it and not the other way around. Yes, and he also said our job as astrologers is not to describe personality. Our job as astrologers, good astrology, is helping them understand how they need fulfillment and how they can resolve tension in their chart, how they can evolve and grow to become the best version of their chart. So this this tendency to sit a client down and describe personality to them didn't fit the model that he taught. Okay. And and so that was probably then tied in with this other thing, which is that it seemed like 
the most important thing for him was having a meaningful consultation or a meaningful conversation, conversation. with the client mm-hmm. and to so that the consultation would change their life and partially as a result of that he preferred referring to them as consultations rather than readings yes absolutely right. because a reading infers a one-way conversation and a consultation is the two people connecting and the two people, the astrologer learning how the client is living their life. Yeah, it's a big, big difference. Yeah, that's something I didn't realize until last night that I had internalized from his teachings in the early 2000s and have for the past 20 years that I never recognized until last night where I got that from in also preferring to refer to them as consultations instead of readings. Mm-hmm. Hey Chris, let me uh, interrupt you w- with a, a short story for a second. Sure. Um, when we were in South Africa, there was a uh, the equivalent of the Tonight Show, and Noel was asked to be on that show. Of course, I was asked to be there. We were rolling out the program and and, and all that stuff. So as a result of that show, I got a lot of things going on. And the first client that I had down there was a, uh, a a black African. I say black African because when people say Africa, you think everybody's black, but it's, it's, it's not not true. And South Africa has more white people than, than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, first client was a black African. Now understand, this guy was raised in apartheid. You're not allowed to learn how to read or, you know, it, it's, it's apartheid. And mm-hmm. he was working in a convenience store, pumping gas and, and so forth. So uh, he approached me at the TV station and said he wanted to talk to me about his horoscope. And when he gave me the data, I knew from the date that it was the same as Bill Clinton. But then when I did the chart, the chart was as identical as could be based on uh, the, the, difference, I, I, the difference, differences in the, uh, the latitude and longitude. Uh, wow. This guy had one planet and a house that Bill didn't have, but otherwise it was pretty much the same horoscope. Mm-hmm. And I, I use this as an example of like, what was I going to, if I had this guy and Bill Clinton sitting in front of me, I'm going to say the same things to both of them. This one guy came up on apartheid with nothing. Uh, he, he just had no shot at doing anything. And th- these are the kinds of things that you have to look at first as an astrologer, if you just assume that this person is going to be what you read in a book, you can get egg on your face. Mm-hmm. That's a great example. Yeah, so that's something Noel emphasized a lot that the um, the social and economic and cultural and other contexts of the contexts of the person's life matter, and you have to take that into account when delineating a chart because. You can have two people born in completely different contexts or different family upbringings, and they're going to respond to that chart or grow into it in ways that can be radically different. Yes, and Absolutely. it brings up the issue of free will because you really you you cannot, from looking at the chart, you don't know how they are living their chart until you talk to them because they do have a role to play in free will in choosing to live it at the highest level or the shadow level. Even with a great early life, even with great parents and everything handed to you, you could still choose to live your life in the shadow level. So you have to connect with the client, in my opinion, in my opinion. 
to determine how they are living their life and not assume ahead of times. And that's why the word in the course, the other word that Noel brought forward that really changed things for me when I sent in my first lesson and, you know, he put red marks all over it and I got a little talking to because I didn't use the word suggest. And boy, did that change my life. So you look at the chart and you say, you know, Mr. Till, you have moon opposite Venus in your chart. And this suggests a great deal of charm. This suggests this, that, or the other. And that is a very respectful way to approach the client as opposed to saying, you are this, that, or the other. So that word suggest is so wonderful. So suggest, uh, the placement Mm -hmm. suggests something Mm -hmm. instead of that it means this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. And then the client confirms it, you know. In a sense, what I tell my students is I chum the water a little bit. Maybe that's not a good example, but, you know, I throw it out there and I let the client tell me how they're living their life so that Mm -hmm. we can move forward. And then each consultation really is a jam session. I mean, you're prepared, you've done your... You've done all your calculations, but you're jamming because if you've never spoken to that client, you have to figure out in the first five or 10 minutes how they're living their life and then redirect and go from there. Noel was an expert at that. He had Jupiter Oriental. He was really, really good at living in that moment and redirecting. So it sounds like two two of the things we're coming up with already here that sound important. One is he seemed very sensitive to language and the meaning of certain words, especially when used in like, let's say, consulting setting and how that's going to come off to a client that may not know anything about astrology and the subtle difference between one word that you might use versus another. And maybe that had some background, perhaps. I think he did like a PR firm or something at one point before he became an astrologer. Is that true? He had already been an astrologer when he had the, the PR firm. It was in McLean, Virginia. I was actually there um, he had a staff of about, I don't know, seven people or something like that. And um, he had written at the time his only self-published book, Holistic Astrology. And I remember him telling me that uh, at that point, and I can't remember what year it was, I remember him saying that he thought that his career in astrology might be done because there was nothing else to say after this book, uh, Holistic Astrology. And so he had set up the PR firm and everything, and that's what he was going to do. But uh, Destiny had other plans. <laughs> exactly. So, and that was a self-published, that was the only book he self-published, and then he must have gone back to Llewellyn? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it but sounds he like- was, he was very sensitive to words. He was an auditory man. Whereas I'm more of a visionary, I get images, I see pictures, I describe in visual terms. He was an auditory man, and the word you used was very important, the precision in words, the tone of your voice. Um, yeah, that, was, that was his protocol. Right. Um, so that seems important, and then the other things that's important is the orientation towards doing consultations and helping clients and helping to change their lives. And different things surrounding that to optimize your effectiveness, not just from a technical standpoint, but also from a standpoint of um, psychology or of counseling in and of itself. Yes, and he also called himself an artist analyst. Mm -hmm. And that's something he says on the DVDs. We are artist analysts. And I think that's just absolutely beautiful because it, it 
describes the creative process in astrology. And Noel really operated very much from the right brain. He was a brilliant, intellectually brilliant man, but he operated very much from the right brain, that creative process. Mm, Okay. Um, All right. So that's going to take us down into his technical thing, but I just want to wrap up some of the biographical stuff first. So at one point, he began teaching what he called his master's course in astrology, where he would this was his highest level course that he would teach to students. Do either of you know when he started teaching that approximately? It was, uh, I remember in South Africa receiving the uh, email from him of the, the election mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have that horoscope in my database somewhere. It was in the late 90s. I can't remember yeah. the exact year, but he, yeah. he okay. sent me a copy of the election. Mm-hmm. Okay, so late 90s, early 2000s. Um, he was also a founding member and early presiding officer, which is their name for like A-Fan. president of AFAN, which is the, Ast- the Association for Astrological Networking, which is one of the big astrological organizations in the US. Um, yep. So he, he was involved in that. Um, he was also involved in organizing the very first United Astrology Conference, or UAC, which took place, I believe, in 1987. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, he received the Regulus Award at the United Astrology Conference in 1998 for enhancing professional image. And the Regulus Chris, Award- I, I have that Regulus Award here. He, mm-hmm. he sent it to me. Mm-hmm. Well, it was sent to me after his uh, after he passed away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was actually that's actually what the genesis of this episode is. I did an episode with Sam Reynolds last month, and. Um, and your name came up as like a prominent uh, black astrologer who'd, who'd written a book and was like well known. And then I went and looked at your website just to see what you'd been up to because it'd been a little while since I looked at your blog, even though I subscribed to it. And I saw that post where his wife had sent okay. you to Noel's Regulus Award, and you had that picture of you and him at that that United Astrology Conference in 1998, mm-hmm. um, just showing the sort of connection and how far back that goes between the two of you. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I knew it was coming, the, the uh, Regulus Award, but the day I received it, you know, and I, and I opened it. Uh, the rush of emotions was intense. Yeah. I can't even talk about it now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I'm sure that must have been um, also a, a highlight of his career for most astrologers I talk to that win or, or receive a Regulus Award, you know, that's a really big deal for them because it's recognition. It's the highest award that, at least in like the US astrological community, that astrologers can offer because that's when all of the major astrological organizations pool their resources to host one big mega conference. And when you're, you receive an, an a award like that, it really is, you know, your peers recognizing you in some major way as a leader in the community. Especially for what he received it for, which was basically the idea of uh, being the person who presented astrology most as a uh, as a business instead of projecting the image of somebody sitting in a half darkened room with incense burning and a crystal ball and 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 you know that kind of thing, which is unfortunately still where the great majority what the great majority of the world thinks about those kinds of things you know when the word uh, astrologer comes up so he was yeah. he was very very proud of that and i remember when he came back he said uh basil you keep going you'll get one one day 
turned out to be I got his. <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah, that's a really good point because that is then probably one of the key or defining things about his astrology was an attempt to um, put a more professional spin, whether that happened deliberately or whether it was just a byproduct of who he was as a person, but to put a more professional image on astrology in general. And so you're right that receiving the award from the community for enhancing professional image is is probably actually pretty meaningful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, brilliant. So that's what I have in terms of his bio for the most part. Um, I'd like to transition, I think, at this point into talking about his approach to astrology. Um, one of the things I want to start with is who his background influences were as an astrologer. And um, I did establish, so he wrote at least like 30 books. Like I've seen another report saying 40. Like I haven't seen a like master list yet. So I don't know what the correct amount is, but it's definitely 30 or more books during the course of his lifetime. Uh, including one cookbook, which was kind of a funny aside. Yes. He also liked to cook, and and that was a thing for him as well, right? Yes, yeah. yeah, he has that. And I think he always said he wrote thirty-five books. That's what I recall him always saying. I haven't counted mm -hmm. them though. Yeah, okay, so that means really like um, next to he rivals. Um, it's still a little bit below, but almost rivals Dane Rudyard, who was the other. Mm -hmm most prolific author of, of the 20th century as far as I can tell. Um, but Noel Till is, is definitely up there. And if for no other reason, that's one of the reasons why he was so prominent and influential. But one question I had is who were his primary influences as an astrologer? It seems like, um, Basil, I think in one of your articles you say Mark Edmund Jones and Dane mm -hmm. Rudyard. Um, it also seems like Reinhold Eberton was a major influence. And then um, Alan Leo, Kathy, you said that that may have been a major influence for him as well. Yes, when I got his library, when I had, when I received the books that he had in his library, and I've been flipping through them, he made notes and underlined and and put things in the margin for many of those books. And the one that he underlined the most, or the I should say the ones, because it's more than one book, were the Alan Leo books. Mm. Um, and I can see where he got his theories, what triggered his thinking. I can see the insight. It's just the most amazing thing to follow this. Now, you know, I do have the Mark Edmund Jones books from his library and also um, the Rudyer books, but the ones that have the most markings are the Alan Leo. Maybe those were the earlier books. I don't know, but I know it influenced him greatly. Greatly. Mm. Okay. And Basil, you think um, you really emphasized, especially Mark Edmund Jones and Dane Rudyard, which is definitely when things started going in a much more like psychological direction, especially with Dane Rudyard and the idea of humanistic astrology. Some of these guys, because um, Noel got his start in like the '60s and '70s, some of these guys were still alive through the 1980s. I think both Mark Edmund Jones and Rudyard were. So Noel may have actually met them or had some personal connection at some point. He did definitely with Mark Edmund Jones. Um, mm -hmm. He frequently told this story at, at lectures. Um, it was he went to visit Mark Jones at his place, uh, and I think it was in the Pacific area of the country, some somewhere in the west, maybe northwest. And um, it was Mark Edmund Jones who said to him that 
sextiles and trines keep things the, the way that they are. Mm-hmm. And it's the hard aspects, the squares that make things happen. And that wow. was the first time that Noel had heard that he was already thinking that way. But the fact that somebody like Mark Edmund Jones, who was so much more established than him at that time, made that kind of a statement that sensed it for him. And that's even if you study with Noel for a month, you know that that's the philosophy that when you look at a trine, you're not looking at this great thing. And if I, I'll add this. Um, little story. I was introduced to astrology when I was 13 years old by my oldest mm-hmm. brother. He's 10 years my senior. He was born in that section of the 40s, uh, like 44, 45, 46, when there was a lot of grand trine stuff happening. He has two grand trines. Mm-hmm. And so he used to brag to me, oh, I've got these two grand trines and I'm going to be this and I'm going to be that. And you've got Sun Square Saturn and you're going to be nothing is, is basically <laughs> what it boiled down to. Okay. So guess guess what? Everything that we had in common, guess who achieved more? Then you can continue. <laughs> right. I think you you won in like 1980, like a I know well, I'm spacing out the name. What was the name of the award? Yeah. Um. It was a. a, a I didn't win it. It was. Are you you're talking part, about music? What, what yeah, I think part, you're talking your, about your musical career. You're part of the production yeah. team that won. Like I was a part grant, of a production Grammy. team, and in, in uh, 1980, uh, we won the Grammy Award for R&B Song of the Year. Stephanie Mills never knew love like this before. Now, this wasn't presented to me directly. There were two mm-hmm. people who were ahead of the production company, but uh, production team. But I was. We were Roberta Flack's band. We got two hits with Roberta, decided to leave and form this production team. In 1980, it, it, it's sort of all culminated. Nice. That's really cool. And that's a whole side thing is you've had a successful music career in addition to your career as an astrologer. Yeah, probably probably more success in, uh, in music because it's, it's more quantifiable you know, in, in astrology. I don't know. It's, it's, it's more difficult to like who's a great astrologer the, the astrologer that has 5,000 clients or I mean how do you you know right how, Plus, do, how do you tell not everybody can write like 30 uh, astrology books or write a thousand page book in like a, a couple weeks or, or what have you yeah, yeah. right when yeah. you're in the trenches dealing with clients every day it is hard to quantify success yeah yeah, because uh, as Noel, I guess, would have said that the success there comes from the impact that you make in an individual yes. client's life through the consultation. Yep. Yes, yep. absolutely. The service the that you provide. On, yep. It's not yep. the number of likes on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So let's see. So we may have had a personal connection with Mark Edmund Jones, and then that aspect thing that you mentioned, Basil, became like a cornerstone of his entire career, that idea that um, square hard aspects are developmental and that you end up focusing on those more and that soft aspects, even um, multiple ones like a grand trine can sometimes, because they don't are not as challenging or de- developmental from his perspective, that they cannot well, the always be as trine, useful. But the grand trine can be developmental. Noel proposed the incredible theory that a grand trine is connected to a potential um, defense mechanism um, of isolation, self-sufficiency and isolation. And he really rocked the boat. You were there at that time, right, Basil? Yep. When he proposed the grand trine 
can be um, um, the self-sufficiency. Um, it's like having having a castle with three moats, a three-sided moat and no drawbridge. You can't get in, you can't get out. And in order to get in or out, you have to um, provide that drawbridge to get out of that behavior because it just cycles around and around and around. Emotional self-sufficiency for the water grand trine. Uh, motivational grand um, self-sufficiency for the fire grand trine. Intellectual self-sufficiency for the air grand trine. Mm, yeah. Practical okay. for Earth. Mm-hmm, practical for Earth. It was very revolutionary. He rocked the boat. He took a lot of arrows for that. But on a therapeutic psychological level, wow. It is just brilliant. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, that'll take us into some of his technical stuff and his technical innovations or, or areas where he was unique or had unique um, proposals or insights. Um, one of the things to start off this session when I was researching this and trying to remember everything and talking with Matthew, we met is that he was saying that Noel crafted an approach that was both technical and psychological, and that's something that's distinctive about him as an astrologer in the late 20th century, um, without necessarily having to sacrifice one for the other, where sometimes, especially in the past decade or two, with the revival of older forms of astrology, sometimes psychological astrology is criticized as being mm-hmm. as lacking in technical rigor or something like that. But and whereas tradition, traditional astrology is perceived as being more event-oriented or predictive. However, Noel's approach was actually still highly technical in some ways, and his approach was that psychological is not just character trait-focused, but also dealt with maturation and internal evolution, and Noel sort of married both a technical approach as well as a psychological approach. Yes, it's a therapeutic approach. And it involved the right brain, as opposed to just measurement-oriented left brain intellectual. It it married both, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, absolutely. Uh, Chris, I, I'll add to that. Uh, in my life, anytime there's Saturn, been Saturn anything with my son, it's been like win the lottery. Uh, Basil Parade in the middle of downtown Delaware, you name it. Uh, I met my wife when transiting Saturn was exactly square, my seventh house son. And uh, Mm. I made my audition with Roberta Flack when transiting Saturn was exactly on my son in August of 1976. But a newbie who reads a book gets digested with all this Saturn stuff, all of this Mm -hmm. crap. And they associate Saturn and other things only with something that is bad. Good and bad. Yeah. So the, the, the whole thing is that you have to look at the life that a person is living first and then apply that to the measurements. If a person has been selling drugs and solar arc Neptune is coming up to the midheaven, that's different than uh, if someone in Thailand who is a Buddhist monk meditating all the time has Neptune coming to the midheaven, you have to look at the life that the person is living and not just, it's not just a one size fits all endeavor. Mm-hmm. How are they going to use that energy? How are they going to utilize that cycle? 
they have free will, but also what do they already have currently in motion that will propel that cycle forward, whether it's a solar arc or transit. He emphasized that all the time in his teaching, the wisdom of that, and I thought that was um, just spectacular. Right, and this might be a good segue into one of his distinctive things was that he had a real strong opposition to the use of the terms benefic and malefic, the traditional terms for the the two benefic planets, Venus and Jupiter, and the two malefic planets, Mars and Saturn. And I think in the last time I met him in person, he mentioned this, that he had sort of made it his personal mission to remove those terms from astrology, and to some extent may have been successful, because I know I've talked to an editor at Llewellyn at once years ago who said that there was like a standing policy that those terms were not to be used and were kind of banned from Llewellyn publications for a while. And I, I kind of <laughs> wonder if Noel, if that wasn't partially due to Noel's influence. Um, but part of his approach in describing that was that if Mars and Saturn represent develop developmental needs, because going back to his developmental need theory and his integration of that psychological approach into astrology, then they shouldn't be labeled as bad um, because it's something that's necessary to grow. And the idea that force and limitations are fundamentally necessary in life. Uh, but that was definitely one of his distinctive takes on astrology, is he really didn't like the terms benefic and malefic, right? Yeah, because it automatically makes you prejudiced. You're, you're a brand new astrology person, you don't know anything about anything, and you read this stuff. And human beings have a tendency to hold on to the things that they learn first. They just do, and no matter what you say, well, if it's not like what I learned first, then you, you know you you get this uh, opposition. But um, it is you sort of have to look at life philosophically. We all have a journey. We all have a path. We all have a necessity to be in this life and grow. And we're going to grow through obstacles. We're going to grow through good things. We're going to grow through a, a lot of stuff. And so it makes a person. Uh, it, you're naive if you think that uh, you're going to go that that life is a trine. You know, it, it just doesn't work that way. It's it's a mixture of things, and so it shouldn't be those malefic things. Uh, when I'm teaching uh, students, I use the word times of challenge. You know, as as opposed to this is bad. I was part of a uh, a Facebook group for about a month until right about the time you called me for this, Chris, actually. Mm -hmm. And on a daily basis, you saw astrology in its absolute worst, j just embarrassing, just stuff. And uh, I took a martyr attitude initially and thought that maybe I could help. <laughs> but uh, I, I wasn't able to help, and uh, I, I got out of it. But yeah, clearly, I'm, I'm I'm definitely on that bandwagon of malefic planets are not bad. It's there's a challenge, you know. It does life has challenges. You go through school. There's going to be times when a test is challenged. Once you get out of school, you're going to be challenged, and that's what. Uh, that's what these hard aspects represent, an opportunity well, find, to grow. And I find mm -hmm. myself over and over again with new students who have been studying for years, who have had anchored into their consciousness 
Things like if you have Mars-Saturn conjunct in your natal chart, you're cruel. And it's an automatic blanket statement. Oh, I see Mars-Saturn conjunct in this person's chart. They're cruel. And they, they, you know, they diagnose this person as cruel. And they have that anchored in. And not only that example, but anything having to do with a Pluto transit where it's the self-fulfilling prophecy. If you anchor it in, if you are telling yourself that about that situation, you will surely manifest it. You get to be right because of the self-fulfilling prophecy. I have a lot of people arguing that concept with me to say, hey, if Pluto comes and hits my chart, it is going to be bad, period, end of story. And I said, you get to be right. Maybe it doesn't have to be. Maybe you can change what you are telling yourself about this situation. But that's my personal view. Um, that's how I choose to see it. And there's enough room in astrology in the world for us to see it in all kinds of different ways. And I think maybe we're all right. And it, from the kind of quantum spiritual level, maybe what we energize and how we see the world becomes our reality and we all get to be right. Um, and Noel sort of embraced that too. Noel embraced a bigger attitude saying he knows what he believed. Um, but he said there's space for all techniques because everybody uses a different tool. And I like that about him because I don't like limiting that there's only one way to see something. So I respected that about him very much. Yeah, he seemed to have his own technical approach, but also sometimes was open to other ideas. I mean, certain ones he certainly had a stronger view mm -hmm. on, especially when it came to benefic and malefic, and mm -hmm. that being something detrimental to especially consulting setting and, and rejecting it for that reason. Um, but other things, technically speaking, he would just say, this is what works for me. And it seems like he would let people do what they were going to do to some extent otherwise. Well, and I also got to know him in his older years. So I really started connecting him with him in 2005 and after. And you know, as you get older, your attitude changes, you soften a little bit. Basil knew him in the early years where he was just gung-ho, really developing, skyrocketing up, right? Right. So we knew him in different phases. Um, I got him in the more mellow stage. <laughs> was he more ardent or um, aggressive in promoting his theories or something in the like 70s or 80s, as far as you know, Basil? Um, he was never really... You know, he would always talk about uh, the fact that he has Mars and Libra and he can see both sides of an issue kind of a thing. So he was never, that was one reason why AFAN chose him to be a presiding officer because, he, mm -hmm. you know, he would say it all the time. I can see both sides of an issue. So mm -hmm. um, he would, he was not the kind of person to just throw stuff in your face, but he, he you know, he, he just made it clear about where he was coming from. Um, if somebody asked him, you know, he would lay it on him, but he he gave always gave people the respect for what they were doing. But he, he you know, it was never like this is the only way and my way or you right. know that kind of deal. But we have to remember in those early years, he came out with so many new theories. The Grand Trine theory, for example, you haven't gotten to it yet. I'm sure you're going to talk about the Saturn retrograde theory, mm -hmm. the hemisphere emphasis theory. Um, the fact that he called unaspected planets peregrine planets. I know you're going to talk about all this, but he came out with these new theories, pioneered new ideas, and took a lot of arrows in the beginning. When you shake things up and you come yep. up with something new, 
So I, I didn't know him in that phase, but naturally when a person is in that phase, you are more assertive because you have to be, because you're having reaction. I got him afterwards when people had already started accepting that, and that's when I became friends with him and started working with him. Yeah, there's a big difference between when you're the up and coming, the young upstart, and you're putting forward new ideas based on your own reflections mm -hmm. and insights, and and that in some instances those are new or unique or go against the grain of the established tradition, and you're kind of like an outsider versus once you've been around for a few decades and the tradition mm -hmm. has. Um, and and your peers like become the people who are mm -hmm. are the mainstream at that point, and your your views become more part of the mainstream. It's not as you're not fighting against mm -hmm. anybody because you've sort of won at that point in some sense. Yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I I was reading this interview that I found on the Internet Archive. It was an interview he did with the Meta Arts uh, website. Oh, yeah. I was in that too. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um. So it says. He says he was living in Europe. This is in like the 1970s, I guess. And he was brought to Seattle to sing at the opera there. And he found a local bookshop and connected in Seattle, uh, which was not the Astrology at All bookshop, I don't believe. But he connected with an astrologer named Dorothy Hughes, who was a retired president of the AFA. And through her, he ended up impressing her with some discussion they had, and and through her and that connection, ended up speaking at an AFA conference. And he said at his first presentation, he only had like twelve people there during his first presentation. But then it went well enough that he had maybe eighty people show up at the next next lecture. And then finally, he says he had two hundred seventy to three hundred at the next one. And then eventually, um, he gave a. Another lecture that was just filling up um, the entire room, or something like that. He says that it filled the ballroom, and there was twelve hundred people there because he gave a lecture on sex and sexuality, which was he said like scandalous or something in the nineteen seventies to give a talk um, on such a topic. Mm -hmm. So we can see how you know some of the things that he might have been doing at that point or addressing might have been edgy. But it was certainly speaking to, or it filled some need that was there in terms of the astrological community at the time. It takes a lot of courage to do that. It takes a lot of courage to be a pioneer and stick to your guns and speak from the heart. And yes, he had a lot of ego. You have to have a lot of ego to do it. He has that gigantic moon, or he had that gigantic moon in Leo, um, and you you have to be, to be able to sustain that without crumbling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So, let's get into some of the technical stuff that he was unique for. Um, like we've said, aspects. He, he had a focus on hard aspects, especially because hard aspects were seen as developmental, soft aspects were seen as static. I've heard there may have been uh, different stages in his career where he may have used more of a six degree orb for hard aspects early on, but maybe, maybe may have moved to like a seven degree orb later on. Is that true? Or can either of you confirm that? The lights, uh, seven, and uh, the planets, five. Except okay. at the same time, he would say, especially in his later years, that the orbs are a span of consciousness. And so the older he got, then he would say, you know, 
it, to him, it wasn't reasonable to have absolute orbs, that in certain occasions you're going to feel in the natal chart, those two planets are reaching out to each other. And if it seems true, if it works, then great. So the older he got, the less he was rigid about orbs. And I'll tell you what, rigidity about orbs is something that I have as my personal bandwagon because I don't find it necessary at all. Um, but so when I knew him, it was seven degrees. And that's what I use because it seems to work so well for me. Okay. Um, yeah. And so that was with the Ptolemaic. He used the Ptolemaic or the major aspects primarily. When it comes to minor aspects, he didn't use the inconjunct because he said that he didn't find that it worked very well in his experience. Had you guys heard that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. Okay. Well, one thing he always said was everybody finds certain techniques that work extremely well for them. And mm. while he said the inconjunct is a great aspect, it wasn't his favorite. It didn't speak to him. He didn't resonate with it. And so he can respect the other aspects, the other techniques, but you know, we all specialize in something. It sings to us, and we get the same information whether you're using a different technique or I'm using a different technique. And Basil, you may have more to say on that. That's just yeah, what I remember. As well, um, at a certain point, he talked about how much information <laughs> do you really need to <laughs> yes. understand a person's identity? I, I mean, Mm -hmm. You think about everybody you know. Think about the most complex person that you know. And you know what's wrong with them. It's not going to take you more than five minutes, if it takes that long, to talk about what it is that this person does to create problems for themselves. If you go by the astrological alphabet and you use everything that there is to use, you end up with, you, you can miss the boat. You can miss, uh, you can miss the, the what's really going on with the person's identity if you use in uh, yeah, conjunction, semi-sextile, sextile, semi-square, inconjunct, quintile. I, I mean, if you just use all of that stuff and you end up with 30 aspects, then it dilutes things. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, how many measurements up, do you need, right? The, yeah. Wasn't there the thing yeah. in Germany how many, how many where they wanted, yeah. You look in the software that we all have, and you can do like all kinds of stuff, like a million different ways, but are people that complex? I, I really don't think so. So um, he got towards the, the latter part of his, the second part of his career, I would say, he got to the point where it was like, I'm only going to use what's necessary and not use a semi-sextile, semi not use a semi-square, because it's just too much. Even with midpoints, he preferred to use a 45-degree sort in instead of 90, because uh, for his eyes, 45 brought in, you know, that it brings in that, that semi-square and the sesquiquadrate. It, it brought in too many, uh, too many contacts for him. Well, and for those of us- Did you mean us, to say that he preferred to use a 90-degree sort instead of 45? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, got it. And for those of us who learned astrology doing the chart by hand, like I did, doing mm -hmm. the actual math, doing the interpolation, 
when you have to calculate all the aspects by hand, you come to a very quick conclusion that I only want to calculate what's important and what works. You don't have the computer and you don't press a button and you don't get the list of 25,000 measurements, which can take up space in your brain and lead you to never making a conclusion. And Noel did that too. He started doing the calculations by hand. I did that for years and years yeah. by hand. Mm-hmm. And so I value simplicity. I take the machete and I just, you know, the spiritual astrological machete and I cut out extraneous things that slow me up and that take too much time. And I try to get to the essentials. And Noel was a big proponent of that. It's why I studied with him. I resonated with that part of him. Sure. Um, so th- that being said, he did develop a special interest in two minor aspects. One of them is the quintile, which is 72 degrees, and the other is the quindecile, which is 165 <laughs> degrees. Quindecile. Quindecile. Remember, Noel with the big rolling R's, you know, rolling his R's in the big voice. Um, he said, I know the British are going to mangle this word. It's the quindecile. And if we didn't say that word correctly, we were in big trouble. Just like if you abbreviated Sagittarius, you would get in trouble. Mm. Never say Sag. Sagittarius is a beautiful word. <laughs> but yes, quindecile and quintile. Right. He preferred mm-hmm. to put like an Italian pronunciation on the term or something like that. He was an opera star. Yeah. He was an opera star. He was a dramatic speaker. Yes. And the Quindicile is a really interesting aspect. I had a mm-hmm. conversation with Susan Miller um, at the NCGR conference in Baltimore. And we were sitting in the lobby. And she goes, that darn Noel, he just made up aspects. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, he, that, that crazy one, the 165 degree one, that's not a real aspect. I said, I beg to differ. I, I find it to be quite fascinating. Yeah. And besides, he didn't create it. It right. was originally from from a German astrologer, Thomas Ring. Mm-hmm. He he just rediscovered it. Yes. Okay. Yes. So 165 degrees, and that's so that's like 15 degrees short of an exact opposition. Exactly. And I think the the keywords in your book, uh, Basil, were intense focus or obsession, and that's mm-hmm. for the quindecile is is the keywords for that. Yeah, it's, it's that feel. You can add more words, but that's that's the essential compulsion, mm-hmm. obsession, uh, a, a cause that you just won't stop at until mm-hmm. you uh, achieve it. And, and Kathy can mm-hmm. add more. No, that's exactly it. Quite necessary focus. It, the need press is very strong with the Quindicile. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can get on board with calling it Quindicile. It sounds like something that uh, was on my burrito yesterday or something like that. <laughs> the Quindicile. Um, Quindicile. What were the keywords for a quintile, which is 72 degrees? Creativity. And in vocational profiling, when he got to that stage, and that's when I entered the mix here, when he came out with that midheaven extension process. Uh, the the quintile became very important because he always said, if you find three or more quintiles using fairly tight orbs for these minor aspects, then there is the suggestion that the person needs a creative outlet. He was very proud of that. And in vocational profiling, it really um, flushes out. It works, in my opinion. It really does. And through the years, me being a musician and all, I had umpteen opportunities to... Uh, you know, to, to test that out. And I found that you really didn't even need 
three or more. Sometimes if a person has one, then then that's that's. Just, I mean, I have two in my horoscope. Um, sometimes if I've seen, uh, I can't mention the name, but very very a person singer who's very very huge right now, and she has one quintile. Has never done anything but sing, but for sure that that quintile is a very important aspect for creativity. And he prided his own. Yes, he did. But here's where I want to mention one of the other uh, concepts that Noel drove into us con- uh, all the time was about themes being echoed and reinforced, that you don't want to ever just look at one tiny measurement and make a pronouncement. Themes are echoed and reinforced over and over. So maybe somebody has one quintile, but maybe they have other reinforcing aspects in their own horoscope that suggest major creativity. Yeah, mm-hmm. getting to that core theme quickly and finding that process um, is what it was all about for him. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when you mentioned a tight orb for minor aspects, we're talking about two degrees or so? Or one That's degree? I, or? I use for Quindicile, I use two degrees. And for a quintile, yeah. it's about two, give or take. Yeah. What do you okay. use, Basil? It, it's pretty much the same. Sometimes, um, like you were saying earlier about the span of consciousness. I mean, if, if you meet somebody, they're a virtuoso musician or, or a barber or whatever the case may be, they're obviously using their lives uh, creatively. And the orb is three degrees. Well, then that person has a quintile. Exactly. You, you, don't, you don't just, it's not a, a concrete rule. You know, sometimes when it makes sense, you stretch things. The, the idea of limiting it is to keep you from having so much vegetable soup to to digest uh, mm-hmm. in your analysis. Again, I want to say mm-hmm. artist analyst. We are artist analysts, which is very different than people who measure with a ruler, you know, or measure right. the aspects in a rigid way. Artist analyst allows the creativity of the right brain to come through. Um, that, and that's very important for me. I have Neptune very strong in my chart, and that artist-analyst concept sings to my soul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And all right, so so that's minor aspects. So that's a good transition at this point to <laughs> move into aspect patterns, which is another thing that he seemed to emphasize, um, perhaps drawing on. I know Mark Edmund Jones was really a major pioneer of that in early 20th century astrology, so perhaps getting it from there. Um, he seems to emphasize the grand trine, the T-square, and the grand square, as well as other things that might be labeled as aspect patterns that involved quadrant or hemisphere emphasis. Hemisphere emphasis is one of the first steps for quickly and immediately looking at the horoscope and seeing patterns and he did it differently than most people. He focused on what planets were not retrograde. Where do you find the majority of the planets not retrograde? And that hemisphere or quadrant that is emphasized says so much about the basic orientation. Basil and I both have Western Hemisphere emphasis, right? And so did right. Noel, that seventh house emphasis. And that is that orientation of being aware of other people, um, potentially giving yourself away, leaving yourself behind, um, checking the room, checking the reaction of others. That's that Western Hemisphere emphasis. That's a huge part. That's in lesson one of the course. 
um, that you pay attention to that hemisphere emphasis. It was um, innovative yeah. and simplified. It's it's the first thing. It, it puts everything else in the horoscope is within the context of that that uh, first impression. Like you see, uh, and Kathy said, both of us are west. Donald Trump is east, and so when when you those of us who are till people, when you hear east, you're thinking of a person who's kind of defensive. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're defensive. They're, they're protecting the ego. They're they are not opening themselves up to others it's you know me i i me me i i me so so and, east uh, is having a preponderance of planets on the left side of the chart towards the direction of the ascendant whereas west yeah. is having a preponderance towards the right side of the chart towards the descendant right non-retrograde yeah. planets so you ignore the retrograde planets you go to where the planets are direct and then he developed in what was it basil the creative astrologer i believe he he talked about therapy flow, which is, I think, absolutely brilliant. So if you have an intense Western hemisphere, like I do, where you give yourself away, I volunteer for too much, I offer to help too much, I give and I give and I give and I give until I'm drained, then the therapy flow is to develop the Eastern side, which is boundaries, to protect yourself. Um, and that's true, you know, that theory can be true for all of them. If you have a southern hemisphere emphasis up by the midheaven, it's the suggestion of being potentially victimized by circumstances, not having a solid base from which to operate. So the therapy flow goes toward the northern hemisphere, which is the fourth house area, which is find a connection and a secure base. And I can go on and on, but it, it was um, revolutionary and and quite wise i thought yeah okay and is this a good place to mention his definition of singleton planets go like, for what it is, basil what because is a sing, to, what is a singleton planet it's in a, it, it's a planet approach? uh his definition didn't deliver most uh didn't deli- uh differ much from uh tradition it, it's a planet alone in a hemisphere by itself Okay. And you look at that planet, the house that it's in, the house that it rules, and uh, those things, if they aren't emphasized, they they need to be emphasized. I have a a singleton Mars; it rules the third house. I have Mercury exactly trying to the midheaven. It starts to build the profile of a, a person who, you know, should communicate, needs to write, and and, and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, that's basically what. Basically, what he said was that you you look at that planet that's in a hemisphere by itself, and um, mm-hmm. you go from there. Do you share your chart data, Basil? Basil, I, I have no issue. I mean, I'm it, my. I, I got surprised the other night. I was looking for Angela Bassett's data, mm-hmm. uh, not in Astro Data Bank, but in uh, Astro Theme. Okay. And when I typed in when I typed in BAS, my name came up. Right. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I, I do. It's August first, nineteen fifty-four, at seven thirty-one p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Philadelphia. In Philly. Do you mind if I put it up on the screen? No issue at all. Okay. You're from Philly. Do you still live in Philly? I live in Bear, Delaware. Delaware. Okay. Um. So there's your chart. What What planet were you saying was a singleton? Mars. Mm-hmm. 
Mars. Okay, got it. So all of your planets are. So you have what twenty seven ish Capricorn mm-hmm. rising. And I don't want to know what degree Pluto is in right now. I have. I <laughs> right. don't look at my horoscope. I don't right. want to know. We won't talk about <laughs> it. Uh, let's just say it's in Pisces or something. So. <laughs> Um, you have all of your planets. The MC is up at like 20 Scorpio, mm-hmm. and the IC is down at 20 Taurus. And, and all of your planets are over on the right side of the degree of the MC IC axis, except for Mars, which is over at 25 degrees mm-hmm. of Sagittarius. Mm-hmm. Right. So then Mars so, would be the singleton planet in your chart. Yes. Got it. Okay. And so what? So is the single planet, singleton planet, does it take over? Or is that did I read that correctly? Or what 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 is the sort of core interpretation of a singleton planet? It emphasizes things. It it leads leads development. You know, for me, uh in Noel's definition of the uh the eleventh house, the love that you hope to receive. Um and if you look at Mars as the application of energy, I realized um uh, after meeting Noel and studying that a whole lot of what I did was, and especially being involved in music, is for the purpose of receiving uh, love and attention. And, and it's not actually love when people clap, but it gives you the feeling of being appreciated. And every endeavor that I've ever been involved in has been something where I can receive applause. And mm-hmm. so uh, that Mars in the eleventh, you know, the, the the need to be loved a certain way, um, is very, very um, has been very, very important to me. But the definition is that uh, it it lead it can lead behavior in terms of the house that it's in and the house that it rules. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Um, and then I meant to ask Kathy, do you share your chart? You're seeing a Scorpio look on my face, aren't you? <laughs> it's totally fine if you don't want to. I never. No, I it's always... fine. It's okay. fine. November twenty first, fifty eight, four twenty nine p.m. Denver. Yeah, Denver, Denver. That's a good place to be born. Um, yes. Yes. Let's see. So, you do you mind if I put it up? And no, you can, that's fine. Okay, it's fine. You can, I've had it in no. I've had it in articles before um, in the Mountain Astrologer, so it's out there. Okay, I am who I am. It doesn't matter. So you have twenty what seven, twenty eight Taurus rising, twenty seven Taurus rising, Al Gaul. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, and do you have mm-hmm. any singleton planets? It doesn't look like you do. It's more distributed, right? Right. Okay. And my midheaven, if it were straight up and down, would please me, but <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm not sorry. getting on your case on that. <laughs> it's like um, I want to tilt my head. <laughs> right. Uh, so let's see. So getting back to aspect patterns. So we've talked about hemisphere emphasis. Um, he also used the grand trine. We did mention that once briefly earlier. Is there anything else we need to say about that in terms of his distinctive approach because it, it it did seem like even though we did there was a caveat to that he still mm-hmm. did have a distinct approach that he introduced relatively early on that it may not be the best thing ever right. because it may not have it may lack developmental tension or something like that well it tends to lead to isolation that grand trine you can't get in you can't get out that self-sufficiency often results in isolating yourself in relationships. And so when you are talking to somebody with a grand trine, it's something I bring up. 
That self-sufficiency. Also, also, uh, easy self-contentment. You know, because you're you're lacking motivation, um, you're not really not really trying as hard, and can be easy to impress yourself with the idea that I'm okay, this is okay. And you, you don't try because you're satisfied with, with things the way, the way that they are. Whereas if you have a whole lot of squares, um, it's just not that way. Well, you can say examples to somebody with a grand trine in water. There's the tendency or the suggestion of self-sufficiency emotionally as if you don't want to open up because you don't want to be hurt again. Or self-sufficiency in an air grand trine, don't don't tell me how to think. I'll figure mm-hmm. it out myself. You know, it sometimes can manifest as not being able to receive help, not wanting to open up to help, you know, because you're just doing it yourself. And sometimes it's problematic, sometimes it's not. Depends on how the person has lived that. But you want to check it out. You want to ask about it. I've had many clients who just talking about the grand trine and suggesting to them, maybe you need to create a moat to get you out of that castle in which you are so isolated. And sometimes that's been the biggest therapeutic breakthrough for them. It's amazing how sometimes that helps tremendously. Mm-hmm. And uh, Chris, what we didn't mention before was that when there is uh, a planet that is in opposition or square to a point in the grand trine mm-hmm. um, yes. that is a potential release point for all yeah. that defenses def, uh, defensiveness yeah. and self-sufficiency and all that stuff so say for example a person has a grand trine and uh you have venus is in the first house and jupiter shows up in opposition to that venus in, in the seventh house well then you're looking at relationships as a way into and out of that person's tendency to be um, self-sufficient and closed off. But it is important to determine, is it problematic? Because it's not an assumption that it will always be problematic. You know, again, that goes back to you don't want to presume something is bad. I mean, one of the lectures I'm going to give for ESAR conference, and one of them I gave at my Empowered Astrology conference, was on anxiety signatures in the horoscope, and the theories of how you can see anxiety potential, but you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, I, I, I was hesitant to teach it because I don't want people going, oh, I see in this person's chart and they have anxiety. They don't want to pronounce or diagnose how somebody is living that chart. Mm-hmm. And the same true for grand trines, you know, so you don't want to automatically assume it is a problem. It is a suggestion of this pattern. Let's check it out. Let's find out how you're living it. Because somebody's going to live their chart very differently when they're 60 than they are when they're 20. And you're going to hope that they've evolved and they've worked on their issues and they've worked some things out. And that's an honorable thing to ask. Probably. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so then that's a good transition point to the other two major aspect patterns that he did recognize, which were the T-square and the grand square. What are some quick interpretive tips for those using Noel's approach, or how did he conceptualize them? Ooh, one of Early on in my studies, T-square was, I, I, didn't, I didn't know what to do. 
the thing that Noel did that really cooled things out for me was just explaining how to analyze it. And you analyze the opposition op axis first, and you give it the energy of the planet that's squaring. So I always like to do Venus, Mars because it's sexual and pe- people can easily relate to, uh, e- easily relate to sex. So if you got Venus in opposition to Mars, let's just call it passion. Okay. The person has Saturn making, uh, the T, you know, the square to both planets. Well, then there's a suggestion that there's some kind of control factor on that person's sexual thing, their passionate thing. If it's Jupiter, then, you know, it, there's a suggestion that it's expansive, that it's rewarding and all that kind of stuff. So that, that's, that's basically, um, how he helped me a whole lot was is just understanding how to analyze the T square because prior to that I was I don't know what I was doing but it, it wasn't it didn't allow me to come up with a uh, with anything effective in mm-hmm. communicating what a T square was about. But nice. I think if you step back and look at holistically, the, the it also points the way to where there is tension in the chart. And my philosophy is if there's tension in the chart in that area, you're going to strive, you're going to work really hard to relieve that tension, to release it, to learn. It's like having a blister in your shoe. It's like I did a hike in the Grand Canyon for 12 miles and I got a blister from my hiking boots and I had to go 12 miles with that blister. And the first thing I did when I got to the top of the Grand Canyon was take the damn boot off and I wanted to throw it in the canyon. Well, that's like how you feel when you have a T-square. It's tension, it's irritating, it's annoying, and your soul, in my opinion, is going to try to resolve or heal that tension. So it points the way to a lot of life purpose issues, it points the way to where there will be growth, right off the bat. Okay. And it's a, he called it, he uh, referred to it as a reservoir of energy. Yes. Mm. Yes. Okay. Um, so I think that is a good transition point into another section, which is the houses. Um, so we already established, you guys said he used Placidus was his his default system of house division, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and it seems like he, he didn't dismiss all of the traditional house meanings, but he did focus on what was psychologically and behaviorally important about the houses. So a good one is perhaps um, the start with is the second house and his take on the mm-hmm. second house as um, how you view yourself as a resource and focusing on notions of self-worth and self-esteem when it comes to the second house. Is that is that more or less correct? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah. that was a, a, a huge one. And uh, I've got a booklet coming out um, towards the end of the year titled The Second House is More Than Money. Mm. And in it, I've got, uh, for reference purposes, so far, 150 horoscopes of very, very well-known wealthy people. Uh, I even have uh, Bezos's chart. And what you're taught in astrology is to look at the second house, look at the condition of the second house you know, for your financial potential. Every single one of these horoscopes has by traditional standards, horrible, bad second houses. Off the top of my head, I can think of one. Oprah Winfrey, she has a Sun-Venus conjunction in the second house, squared by Saturn. She has Mercury in the second house, opposed by fifth. Uh, 
show that chart to somebody who's been reading astrology books for three or four years and they have no client experience. They're going to say poverty and this, that, and the other. Um, as well, he would use this example. You're going to talk to a Tibetan monk who sits around and meditates all day. If that Tibetan monk has 12 planets in the second house, you're going to talk to them about money. It, it doesn't, it doesn't work, but everybody has something to say about how they feel about themselves in terms of self-worth and value. No matter what your status is in life, you feel a certain way about yourself. And we begin to uncover that in the uh, the second house. But, you know, that mm -hmm. doesn't discount the second house with money and value and all the traditional meanings of the second. It just says you're looking through a different lens. When you are looking through the psychological lens, then you can look at the self-house or second house perhaps as self-worth. When you are looking through the mundane lens, then you're going to view it differently. Yeah. Sure. But his certainly his orientation was more about psychological, uh, mm -hmm. psychological and like need and things like that. Mm -hmm. All right, so that's a good um, touching on the second house. What are some of the other houses that he touched on that he gave sort of a unique spin or more of a psychological spin on that stand out to each of you that were distinctive in terms of Noel's approach? Go ahead, Kat. Well, I already mentioned the big one for me was the fifth house giving love, the eleventh house receiving love, and your ability to receive. Primarily, my clients, you know, because I do astrology full time. This is how I earn my living. This is how I pay all my bills. Mostly consultations with some teaching thrown in, and mm. the majority of clients I have are women. And again and again and again, when I'm seeing eleventh house issues, it is: Are you able to receive? You know, I, I know you're good at giving. Can you receive? And they will frequently say, no, I'm terrible at, at receiving. And I say, why? And so often, if you have a mutable sign like um, Gemini on the cusp of the 11th, then guess what you get on the cusp of the second house more often than not is Virgo, ruled by the same sign or the same planet. So, mm -hmm. so often you see issues from the 11th house connected to issues of the second house and self-worth gets in the way of being able to receive or feeling that you are lovable. And the therapeutic principle then moves toward teaching or, or helping them to understand they are lovable inherently. They don't have to earn it. They, you know, something got in the way in their early life and they don't feel they're lovable. So that 11th house piece was really, really important to me. And the fifth house too, ability to give love, ability to receive love, and the second house of self-worth. Yeah. Okay. Cornerstones. Um, so let's see, aside from that, he he was somewhat unique. When I, when I learned astrology, uh, modern astrology in like the early 2000s, I didn't feel like there was a lot of focus. There was more focus on planets in houses and for me, it wasn't until I came across like a relatively new Alan Oaken book on the rulers of the houses that I saw a really detailed treatment of planets ruling houses being placed in other houses. But that was actually something that Noel focused on was the rulers of the houses using the modern rulers of the signs of the zodiac, right? Significator dynamics, yes, absolutely. It's right. Nice. Um, he used the term, so he didn't say ruler. He used the term significator when talking about the ruler of, like, let's say, the seventh house, the planet that rules the seventh house, and where it's placed in the chart. He used mm -hmm. both. He used both. Yeah. Both. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, he, and it was mostly significator, but it was both. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, but that um, becomes very, very important therapeutically. The ruler of a certain house being in developmental tension um, would drive the core themes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And and Matthew, we met, said, told me that um, Noel, Noel would actually emphasize the ruler of the house more potentially than planets placed in the house. Is that your understanding? Mm, well, it's not my 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 understanding is that tension is tension, whether it's right. the planet in the house or the planet ruling the house. Right. Um, obviously, the planet ruling the house becomes more important than uh, when there is no planet in the house. Person has the ruler of the the fourth house um, involved in a grand cross. That's that's huge, you know, mm-hmm. in, in terms of giving us an idea that there may have been some parental tension to talk about, and we need to see to what degree, if any, that has uh, affected mm-hmm. your, you know, affected mm-hmm. a person's life. So okay. it's not more, more than, it actually, it's either. Exactly. I agree. Yeah. Got it. And um, in terms of the rulers of the houses or the using the modern rulers of the signs of the zodiac basil in your book i know you used you mentioned both the modern rulers and then the traditional rulers as co-rulers um was that part of noel's system or where did he stand in terms of that whole thing it was it's in the book because uh we the idea was that we wanted to be able to get students into the the uh into the school who mm-hmm. knew nothing at all about astrology, just zero. And we wanted them, we wanted to have a book out that took them uh, through all of the, the the basics to the point where by the time they got finished doing the book, uh, reading the book and studying it, um, they could do a decent job with the, with the horoscope. But no, Noel never went around talking about traditional rulers. It was just like, only educationally, but he would, in terms of uh, using it in analysis. Um, it was not the way. Yeah. So Noel was one hundred percent. Uranus rules Aquarius, Neptune rules Pisces, and Pluto rules Scorpio. Yes. Yeah, it would stretch out a little bit with elections and horary, of course, but with with uh, natal analysis, it, it was always modern. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so then he would have been one of the first generations of astrologers then where it was like fully that scheme of just using the modern rulers since Pluto was discovered in like the 1930s and then it, there's like arguing they're arguing for a couple of decades about what sign it should be assigned to but when Noel comes in in the 1960s and 70s he's pretty firmly adopting and promoting that scheme yes yipper okay um, so moving on, another distinctive interpretive principle that I know is pretty distinct to Noel, and I guess he came up with was his interpretation of Saturn retrograde as being re- related to self-worth issues related to the experience of the father and um, having some sort of unique interpretation of that. What was his his take on that? Gee. Go ahead, Kat. Yeah. <laughs> well, his his authoritative statement is that when you find Saturn retrograde, there is a suggestion that the father may not have been present 
or have shown the leadership necessary, or could even have been tyrannical. Um, now, I modify it slightly, and I'm not a person who adheres to any rules hard and fast about anything. I have way too much Uranus in my chart to do that. So I'm a rebel. I'm a maverick. I agree very much with Saturn retrograde in most cases can suggest the father may not have shown the leadership necessary um, in some form or may have not even been there or may have been too passive. I think it works the majority of the time, but there are some cases where it doesn't. And this is where you check it out with the, with the um, client. But when Noel came up with this theory, he was working with people, he was working with a different generation, especially people who had been born to um, right after the World War, World War II, and there was a tightness, and there was a, it was a different stereotype. Certainly when he went to um, Asia, he found that to be hard and fast, you know, Saturn retrograde and the father's not present because the father is so busy with career. But that's the theory, and you check it out and you ask, you know, there's a suggestion here that your father may not have been present or maybe passive or didn't show the leadership necessary. And oh my God, that's all you need to say. The client confirms. The client will tell you. And then also the house that Saturn rules. You look at that. But you have more to say about that, Basil, because this is personal for you too. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, you're right. It doesn't, doesn't always work that way, but, uh, it passes the 85% rule. 85% of the time, you, you're going to find that it's, it's true. In my family, I have two older brothers. The oldest brother is 10 years older, and the old, uh, other one is uh, eight years older. Now, our father, um, our father's mother passed away giving birth to him, and his father never let him forget about it. Beatings, whippings, and so forth. So before any of us were born, he had his own psychological pattern based on how he came up. So my oldest brother has Saturn retrograde. The next oldest brother has Sun conjunct Saturn. I have Sun square Saturn. So you look at this family, it's like, what is the deal with this father? And then mm -hmm. you, you, you talk and you find out like that's, uh, you find out what happened. You know, that mm -hmm. this guy had a bad experience and he laid it all on, uh, the children. Now, my two older brothers, they got a lot of beatings and whippings and, and, and that kind of parenting. I didn't. I got one time I took my allowance money and I went and put it in a pinball machine. And uh, my father was sitting up there getting his shoes shined. I told you not to get not to blah, blah, blah. And I got spanked a little bit. It was no big deal. But my brothers, they got the kind of things that parents get locked up for today. So, um, that's interesting. So they both had Saturn retrograde, but it's direct in your chart. Uh, it's it's direct in my chart. It's square. Uh, I should have said it's not just Saturn retrograde. It's Saturn conjunct square in opposition to the Sun can manifest the same kinds yeah. of things. So okay. in my family, all three brothers, uh, the oldest one with the with the two grand trines, he has Saturn retrograde, ruling the fourth. Uh, the next oldest one has Sun conjunct Saturn, and I have Sun square Saturn. Got it. So it's a echoing theme. So it's not just Saturn retrograde, but similar echoes or similar themes can come up with hard aspects between the Sun and Saturn. And then yeah. you had a bit of the youngest child situation where 
sometimes like um, the parents can go easier on the younger child because they've sort of worked out. They got older. They got got mature. You know, they got older and and started you know feeling uh, badly about it or whatever. Sure. But but the theory that Noel had was that if Saturn is retrograde or stands out in the chart as in potentially the father wasn't present, then the mother is going to be emphasized in the horoscope. And he always talked about the seesaw. So the mother and father at each end of the seesaw, if the father is down, the mother is up. If the mother is down, the father is up. So who's going to be emphasized? So if the father is passive or didn't show the leadership necessary, then usually the mother was going to be emphasized in some way. You see that in the horoscope with aspects to the moon or the ruler of the fourth house. Noel saw the mother as the fourth house and the father as the midheaven. I know in classical astrology, it's the opposite. In the end, does it matter? No, you ask the client. I mean, in my mind, I think they all work. You ask the client. You, I don't, I'm not a rule-based astrologer, obviously. But the bottom line is, what do you do with Saturn retrograde therapeutically? How do you handle that? Why do you need this information? You don't mm-hmm. want to just say, Saturn retrograde, your father wasn't present. Mm-hmm. You say, how can you build discipline and authority within yourself? Has it affected your self-worth? How can we work out this behavior so that you feel more whole? And so often, many men become a father to heal their own Saturn retrograde. They become the best father they can be in order to release or heal the buildup they've had because of their own Saturn retrograde. And on and on. What do you do with this information? That's more important than the hard and fast rule because I am always cautious of these things because people will go, Saturn retrograde means your father wasn't present. My daughter has Saturn retrograde in Aquarius. My husband and I are totally devoted to our children. And if I asked my daughter, if a, if an astrologer said to you, your father was passive or wasn't present, what would you say? And she'd say, she told me, I would say they're crazy. You guys were the best parents in the world. I loved it when she said that. And that sounds like bragging, but she did say that. Um, but my daughter, I, I'm open to past lives. I'm open to the concept of reincarnation. And from day one, she was always super focused on books or shows that dealt with orphans, that dealt with the loss of parents. And I watched her and I observed her. She may have come in with that. And then she may have chosen a family that was going to be really super focused on her. But she doesn't exhibit Saturn retrograde in the father energy at all. And so there are those exceptions and you ask the client and you find out. Sure. And just for clarification, because that's something that's kind of absent in Noel's work as a modern astrologer, despite he was the fact that he was drawing on some of the um, the tradition that was influenced by uh, some of the New Age movement, and like mm-hmm. like Alan Leo and Dane Rudyard and Mark Edmund Jones were all theosophists, but right. that's something that's kind of absent from Noel's work. It's it he doesn't didn't go really, there. No. He didn't have like a spiritual or a metaphysical backdrop necessarily. Not at all. Mm-mm. Behind the scenes, wanna... he did. Behind the scenes, yeah. I had many conversations with him about past lives and spirituality, and you know the mystical stuff. But in print, he did not. No, sure. He's very pra- very practical yeah. dealing with clients and, and yeah. uh, he would he would often describe in a in a lecture, oh, they say all these things about the North Node and all that you know, it was that kind of 
attitude. Now I'm totally about all of that, that stuff, North node, South node, in terms of the tra- traditional, uh, this is where you need to go and that's where you've been and what you've mastered, you know, that, that whole type deal. I'm totally into it. Uh, even the Jeff Green, Steve Forrest evolutionary, I'm totally, totally into it. Noel, that just wasn't, uh, he felt that it had nothing to do with helping the person to pay their bills. Mm-hmm. Mm. So that's interesting. So then part of what characterizes Noel's approach is a technical and a consulting and somewhat psychological focus, but it's largely sort of agnostic in terms of spirituality or anything like that? On the external, mm. not not agnostic yeah. so much, but yeah, just I mean, I, very I structured. I'm not, as, yeah. I'm not as concerned about his personal views so right. much as what he taught and the mm-hmm. influence that he had on the astrological tradition in it terms needed, of his public output. He was totally Capricorn there, needs to be applied practically in real life right now. I think he just didn't want to muddy the waters, you know, because he was a teacher. First and foremost, more than anything else, his legacy is that he was a teacher catalyst. And I think he wanted to keep it crystal clear and clean. That's my sense. He always told me um, to rein in my Neptune. I have a very strong Neptune also, you know. So we had many conversations where he was trying to pull my Neptune down to earth. Sure. And it's just, it's distinctive in terms of the generation and that he was in and the generation that came in 10 years after him with like the Pluto and Leo generation mm-hmm. that did come up in the 60s and 70s and was sometimes very tied in with the counterculture movement or the New Age movement. And a mm-hmm. lot of those ideas from the earlier theosophists did take much greater prominence in some of those approaches, like evolutionary astrology, in terms of an orientation towards past lives or. Um, spirituality and metaphysics, but that was something. Again, it's, it just seems like his approach is more technical and more um, consultation oriented, and perhaps that goes back to why, for example, winning the Irregulus Award for what is it, public image, and and that that was part of his preoccupation, almost in some ways. He wanted yeah. to be seen as the professional. He wanted to be seen as practical. He did not want to be seen as the mystic, even though he was. I mean, mm. in those last years, I spoke to him many times a week, and we had many mystical conversations. But professionally, he wanted to be seen as practical. And one of his okay. favorite books was Tibetan Book of the Dead. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of other technical things that he was unique for, one was his definition of the term peregrine where he developed his own <laughs> his own definition and it the way that he defined it as i understand it is that it's a planet that does not have any ptolemaic aspect um, minor aspects were not considered and there was a notion somehow that the, a peregrine planet that's unaspected would take over the chart due to a lack of relationships mm-hmm. with other planets um, and this created I guess some tensions later once traditional astrology was revived in the 90s and some astrologers doing Renaissance astrology started using the old 17th century definition of the term peregrine, which meant that a planet doesn't have any dignity, that there Mm -hmm. was some conflict because Noel had had been using the term with with a sort of different definition at that point. He's a pistol, isn't he? I mean, he purposely, (laughs) I mean, he could have chosen unaspected, but he chose peregrine because Peregrine means wanderer or foreigner, and he thought that resonated with the concept he came up with. I have con- subsequently, when I teach, I say unaspected. Me too. Um, I yeah. never say peregrine. Yeah, I don't either. Okay. 
but well, it's it is it's a very interesting you know he, theory though it's interesting that you feel justified in doing that because in his astrology concepts of like dignity and minor dignities and like terms and and decans and stuff aren't used so it's not mm-hmm relevant if you don't have dignities as a sort of concept for the most part. So he probably felt more leeway and also maybe to some extent his self-taught and innovative sort of approach to things um, was part of what fed into that perhaps. But that was still the notion of an unaspected planet being important in the chart was a distinctive feature of his astrology. Yeah, and I definitely yeah. agree with that theory. Unaspected planets are a big part of what I teach, and I see it as very important. But Noel was a wordmeister. So in his defense, he wasn't really just trying to poke classical astrologers in the eye. To him, the meaning of peregrine was wanderer or foreigner, and that's how he sees a planet that is not aspected by one of the five main Ptolemaic aspects, that it dominates the chart, it takes over because it's not connected. It's a wanderer. It is um, the not integrated. The 18th tooth in the mouth. Yeah, the 18th tooth in the mouth. That's perfect. That's what he would call it? Well, among other things, yeah. Mm-hmm. The aching tooth in the mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just draw, mm-hmm. it draws all of the attention. Mm-hmm. It makes a okay. lot of noise because it's not integrated. It makes a lot of noise, and the house that it rules can dominate life, purpose, experience. Mm-hmm. And so, this would be a planet with no aspect within orb within seven degrees, basically. Well, except sextile is a smaller orb. I use four degrees for sextile. I use seven degrees for the others. But yes, it would be conjunction, sextile, trine, square, opposition within the orbs that you use. Some people use really, really tight orbs. Other people use gigantic orbs. You have to work that out within yourself. But when a planet is not connected to the other players in the chart, it's not integrated, it's a maverick. I call it the maverick planet. I wrote an article about it in the Mountain Astrology. No, where was it? Yes, it was in the Mountain Astrology. I can't remember where it was published, but I wrote it about that. Okay. And I'm brilliant. sure Basil has written many things about unaspected planets. Yeah, if if you're a tail person, it's it's part mm-hmm. of the uh, mm-hmm. part of the wallpaper. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It Got works it. in my, I mean, I find it to be incredibly helpful. Yep. One of his favorite analysis. examples with it that he would always use in lectures, uh, Chris, I don't know if you're old enough to have experienced, uh, and I just forgot his name, um, Howard Cosell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, unaspected uh, Mercury. Howard Cosell was a sports announcer who had a very unique approach. His, the whole thing about him was the way that he talked. And he was an incessant, constant talker, just like, and he had a way of saying things that was sort of on the unique side. And um, he had an unexpected Mercury and the whole thing. I mean, outside of being a communicator for uh, what he did for a living, it was just the way that he did it was, was so mm-hmm. distinct and uh, mm-hmm. he was a Mercury dominated person. There are many, many good examples like that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Let's move on. One of the things that was also distinctive that he introduced was um, solar arcs as a timing technique. And he published what I think is one of the first, if not the first English language full textbooks on the subject in 2001 titled Solar Arcs, Astrology's Most Successful Predictive System. 
was this one of his his distinctive techniques? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Transits and arcs. Yep. Yes. He simplified it. I mean, that's what was so great about Noel. He simplified it. He simplified the concept that if you're born between March and October, you're, the sun moves slower. So you're going to have a deficit in solar arc um, accumulating at age 45 for the solar arc accumulated sex semi-square or the solar arc accumulated sextile that for people born between October and March, we'll have it happen at around age 60. But if you're born between March and October when the sun moves slower, you have it more at 62. He simplified that. And that was his gift at taking these big subjects and simplifying them and getting to the core themes very quickly. Yeah. So I use solar arcs and transits. Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. So those are the two primary predictive or timing techniques of solar arcs and transits? The primaries, yeah. He would also, also uh, the secondary progressed moon, and that's the only part of secondary progressions that he, uh, that he used. Um, the idea is that uh, with secondary progressions is that if you look at the planets, I don't know, Jupiter or Saturn on out, and even right now, if you did the secondary progress chart for yourself for 90 years from now, Pluto might even still be in the same degree. So what happens in secondary progressions is that you lose Saturn through Pluto as being able to make anything happen that wasn't already happening at birth. Mm. Um, and really is kind of the, the this, this, a similar logic with the rest of the planet. So uh, we only use the, the secondary progress moon to the uh, this contact to the angles. And for me, I pay attention to when it's conjunct square or, or uh, oppose Saturn, because that can be an enormous time of planning, of having to change things, of having to uh, get it together. President Obama had moon Saturn when he was running for office. So, um, yes, yeah, the transits, the solar arcs, secondary progressed moon. Um, what am I forgetting? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tertiary progressed moon sometimes yeah. for little, little bell triggers. But in the end, you know, you're distilling down and finding techniques that work for you so that you, and I find solar arcs and transits to be equal in strength. Some people think solar arcs are more powerful than transits. I see them as equal and I see them overlapping and working together. So for me, I don't look at only solar arcs. I don't look at only transits. I look at right. how the how the rug is being we woven by these fibers overlapping each other. Yeah. Yep. And solar arcs are approximately, what you do is you basically move each planet forward about one degree per year, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. right. One degree and, per year of life. And then you can look at the early arcs very easily. And then this technique easily. was... Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? If, if you look at the horoscope, and for example, Noel's moon, I'm looking at his chart here, was 27, his moon was 27 Leo. His fourth house cusp is 7 Virgo. So if you add 10 years to that 27 degree O Leo moon by arc, you move it forward 10 degrees, it would have hit his fourth house cusp. Well, at age 10, he had big things happening in life. So one of the things we do is you can arc, and that's why it's really nice to have the degree of the house cusps on the chart because... Right. Sorry they, about that. No, that, I mean, it's just, um, it, it's a, you can't see it as well this way. 
But one of the things we do in the early part of the course, the course that now Basil and I are teaching, the master's degree correspondence course, is, you know, one of the techniques is you arc the angles forward to hit planets or you you arc the early degrees or the planets forward to hit angles um, because the angles are the most sensitive parts of the chart. And that's the other theory he had. The angles are the most sensitive parts of the chart. So okay. at age 10, moon equaled fourth house cusp. Because the and, the fourth house cusp is at seven Virgo. Yes. At, and the moon is at 27. So that's 10 yes. degrees. And since mm-hmm. we're saying one degree equals one year, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. 10 at 10 years old, the moon would conjoin. Mm-hmm. So it's you're directing the um planets to the natal positions in the chart, not to each yes. other. Right. Yeah. Well, and then also look at the midheaven, which is seven Pisces. And it arched forward to hit Saturn at age 10. So at age 10, and then at age um, 11, he had the fourth house cusp hitting Neptune. So Mm. you see right away, your eye sees at age 10 and 11, what was going on for you, Mr. Till? Well, his father left. This is a classic. He has this story in many of his books. Mm -hmm. But you see it with your eye. We teach students to do that very quickly. Now, we don't teach them to proclaim or to with absolute conviction, say what happened. We teach them to see there was major activity at that point in life for that child, and you got to check it out. Developmentally, something took place. What was it? Mm-hmm. So, and, we're, and you're mainly focused on hard aspects, right? So conjunction, square opposition when you're doing solar arcs? Yes, for yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then yeah. the other thing that this brings in is because sometimes with solar arcs, you can direct stuff and it won't hit natal positions for a long time. One of the things that gets integrated into solar arcs is the use of midpoints. And this seems to be something that he picked up um, from the cosmobiology school of Reinhold Eberton. And this is a major thing that he brought over from Reinhold Eberton was the use of, I think, solar arcs and midpoints, right? Yeah, his goal with uh, with Eberton was to simplify that, that stuff. Um, that book combination of stellar influences, uh, mm-hmm. he felt that it could be updated and made easier to understand. And so towards, um, I don't know, I guess from synthesis and counseling on out, uh, the back always had a reference book that you could, uh, a reference book, it always had references to uh, those midpoints. You could actually use it for transits too, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, he was... Uh, we had lots of long discussions about about midpoints. But it wasn't so much, his main focus with midpoints wasn't so much with the solar arcs, although he called them indirect arcs. And he would look at when a planet made an indirect arc to a midpoint, but that wasn't the main focus. It was more mm-hmm. in the natal chart, looking at natal combinations through the 90-degree midpoint search, especially the sun-moon midpoint, which is the essential midpoint in my point of view. Definitely. You know, if there's a planet conjunct square or opposite that sun-moon midpoint, it is very much part of the life purpose. That planet comes forward, the power comes forward. I have Neptune equals sun-moon and midheaven equals sun-moon and my Neptune dominates. But It's, so it's like it's on the ascendant. Mm-hmm. To me, that, that's the, how I think of it. When I see something at the sun-moon midpoint, it's like it's on the ascendant. It's part of the identity. 
Now, one of Noel's other students was Don McBroom. And before before um, Noel promoted me to be his assistant in the seminars, and that was in about 2012, Don McBroom was his assistant in those yearly seminars. And that was when Noel could still easily get contracts for people at Llewellyn. And Don McBroom wrote the most brilliant midpoint book called Midpoints by Llewellyn and um, directly influenced from Noel's teaching. And it's excellent. Basil, you have a midpoint um, ebook also, right? And mm-hmm. it's yeah. equally brilliant. So it simplifies it. It makes it so, and it's much lighter than Eberton. Eberton is too negative for me, too heavy. Yep. I, I can't right. go there. I can't go uh, there. Noel characterized um, Ebert. He said he updated Eberton's midpoint delineations when he adapted them in, I think, in synthesis and counseling and astrology in two thousand in nineteen ninety four, and then especially in the sol- back of the Solar Arcs book in two thousand one. He mm-hmm. said that they were World War II era delineations, and he he characterized them as being too pessimistic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. It's not how you, it's not the viewpoint I want to have of the world is to automatically see a midpoint involving Saturn and Pluto and its dire, horrible, terrible things coming up. I mean, that you anchor that into your consciousness, you're surely going to create it. So yeah, yep. Noel lightened it up and added some psychodynamic aspects. Okay. So so part of it was to reconceptualize it more in a psychological context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't want, uh, like Kathy said, you don't want to be thinking that this is good and that is bad and and, and that 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 kind of stuff. It, it just, first of all, it prevents you from thinking that you are the one that's responsible for your life. Ultimately, no matter what's going on in your horoscope, it is you. You're the one making the uh, making the decision about whether or not. You should marry this girl whose reputation has been that she slept with 350 people, but I'm going to marry her anyway because I can change her. And you've got Neptune in the seventh house. Well, did Neptune make that mistake or did you? You know, it's it's really that kind of practical Mm -hmm. thinking Mm -hmm. that this horoscope is not controlling you. You know, you are living through it. It is living through you, but uh, the planets. Famous, quite often said till statement, and Kathy can finish it before I before I even say it. But planets don't make anything happen; people do. Mm. So, mm-hmm. so part of it was a change in the orientation towards focusing on the things that are within the control of the native, and and not focusing so much on the things that are outside of the control of the native. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so midpoints, solar arcs, um, vocation. He had a very special vocation or a particular vocational technique for determining a person's vocation, and he did weekly vocational exercises on his forum, right? Yeah. Yes, Kathy's but I want to say the greatest at that. Oh, thank you, Basil. You're very nice. But I wanted to say he, it's not to determine vocation; it is to understand how what is going to be most fulfilling, and in the vocational profile. Um, we sort into five different categories, so to speak. And in fact, when Noel was trying me out to find out if he was going to allow me to start teaching at those student seminars, 
One of the first things he gave me was the opportunity to present something on vocational profiling. This was back in 2012. And I, I came up with what I call the vocational mandala based on his work. And I went out and I got um, the hat from Harry Potter, the sorting hat that they used when the students would first arrive at Hogwarts and they would be sorted into the houses, Gryffindor, Ravenclaw. Uh, Hufflepuff or whatever it was in Slytherin. And I use that concept that vocational profiling is very much like that sorting hat where you're going to sort through the vocational network and you're going to find out into which category the majority of energy is sorted for vocational fulfillment. And those five categories are business administration, creative expression, performance, communication, or helping and healing channels for fulfillment. And what I did was something really fun and went out and got a Dumbledore hat um, and got a cape and put the sorting hat on a stool and had my husband, who has a broadcasting voice, and I would put up a chart and I would have the sorting hat say where that person was sorted, into which channel. And then I had Noel come up with the Dumbledore hat and the big cape on because he was the headmaster of the Till Group. It was so much fun and he did it with a flourish. But the bottom line is, I think that vocational profiling, that midheaven extension process, was a stroke of genius on his part. Absolutely. But it is a process of, or it is a process. It is not pronouncing you should be in business. It is a process of finding where the vocational channel needs to go in order for fulfillment. Mm. Yeah. So again, sort of following up on the idea of, of uh, an astrology of focusing on social or psychological needs uh, mm -hmm. as what's indicated in the birth chart. Mm -hmm. right. I'll tell you what, though, adding it to your practice is extremely helpful. Both of my kids are mid to late 20s now. And when they were in college, I had so many consultations, mostly pro bono, from their friends in college doing vocational profiling, helping them understand what is going to help them feel fulfilled in career. So a lot of those were just simply based on the vocational process. And it was incredibly helpful to kids at that age. I mean, it was incredibly fulfilling for me, even though I didn't get paid for most of it. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yep. Brilliant. Um, all right. So moving on, because we have been going for two hours and 20-ish minutes now. Uh, so just to wrap up, um, the last of the technical stuff, he used the Aries point as like a sensitive point. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's another thing coming from cosmobiology or maybe from the Homburg School. Mm -hmm. um, and also used developmental cycles just to touch on one transit-related thing. We've touched on how solar arcs and looking at early sol solar arcs in the life might have indicated crucial things that happened in the childhood, but also potentially looking at other early maybe transits or outer planet transits like Saturn transits as um, events that happened in childhood that had a formative effect on one's character and psyche. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So yes. this is part of, again, just marrying psychological and event astrology um, by looking at events that happened during early developmental stages and sort of unifying the two instead of them being completely separate? Yes. Right. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, what are some of his uh, most important books? So if we've established that he wrote something like 30, 30 plus books, 
it seems like the main one or his the pinnacle of his writing career was his thousand-page synthesis and counseling in astrology from 1994. Yes, absolutely, it was. He yeah. um, he timed. He told me, uh, I'm not sure how long before the event, but he told me that uh, he has Solar Arc Sun coming up to his midheaven, and he wanted to do something to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. And that taking advantage of was his favorite book, Synthesis and Counseling and, and Astrology. So that, that one, if, if he were here, I'm certain that he would say that Synthesis and Counseling and Holistic Astrology were his his mm-hmm. favorites. Yes. Holistic yes. Astrology? That's the self-published book. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the self-published one. So that's probably out of print, right? Probably, or, you know, surely you can find it for $1,000 or something like that somewhere. Yeah, the vocation uh, book is out of print, and it's going for like $900 right now on Amazon. Right, right. You you can't find very many of them. Same with synthesis and counseling and astrology. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it would be nice to get them back. You know, there's one thing that you haven't mentioned, and that is just one last piece that really has— have has affected me and my practice, and that is Noel came forward with the idea of idealism and how idealism is shown in the horoscope, the idealistic mindset and the therapeutic issues around idealism. And that's that's a completely different topic. It's worthy of an hour conversation, but it has affected my practice deeply because most people who come in for an astrological consultation are highly idealistic and there are disappointment cycles because they're projecting idealism into life and missing reality signals. But that was one of Noel's breakthrough concepts. Incredibly yep. valuable. Incredibly. Okay. Are, are there any other things like that that were distinctive about his approach, either technically or just procedurally, that are worth mentioning really quick before we, we wrap up or that I, I didn't include in my outline? So many, but I think I'm yeah, we we sure. got the basics. It's it's yeah. hard to, you know, when he, <laughs> when there's so much to consider, it's hard to remember it all. Sure. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, synthesis and counseling and astrology. That's not like an intro book. That's more advanced and, and assumes more basic manual. knowledge, right? Yeah, that's the manual that goes with the master's correspondence course, which is okay. like a a, a two year almost master's degree in a sense in therapeutic astrology. Yeah, it's okay. a heavy book. And it is about 800 pages. I was wrong. I was thinking it was 1,100. I looked it up, and it's 800 800, okay. Well, that's that's not, I guess that's long long enough, 800 pages. <laughs> that's not bad. Um, so let's see, other titles that uh, me and Matthew were talking about, Solar Arcs, which came out in 2001, Prediction and Astrology, which was 1995, Vocations, The New Midheaven Extension Process, which is published in 2006, um, the Astrology of Intimacy, Sexuality, and Relationship in 2002, The Astrological Timing of Critical Illness in 1988, The Creative Astrologer, Effective Single Session Counseling in 2000, uh, Noel Till's Guide to Astrological Consultation in 2007, and then his early series, The Principles and Practice of Astrology in 12 Volumes. So those are just a few of his 30-something titles. Mm-hmm. And in the Astrology was, of the Famed, which you know was all about rectification and was incredibly brilliant. The Astrology That's the of, one, uh, Chris, I mentioned that uh, about writing an intro. It was it that was you wrote that forward to? Okay. 
Um, and that was one where he went back and he tried to rectify the charts of several famous figures from history, like Leonardo da Vinci and other people. Right, right. Nice. Okay. And um, your book, Basil, is uh, The New Way to Learn Astrology, and that came mm-hmm. out in 1999? 1999, yeah. Okay. And that's another one. That was Llewellyn, and it's out of print. Do you, is there any plan to bring that back at some point or reprint Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Um, right now, I'm thinking about October. I have to see how things go in the world. But um, I own the, uh, the text. Llewellyn owns the title. So there's going oh, to nice. be another one called, uh, I, I haven't determined the title yet. Um, and it's going to have three, maybe four additional chapters that were not mm-hmm. in the uh, book. Because as far as I'm concerned, when, when somebody is learning astrology, um, it should also include solar arcs and, and certain things. So uh, this will have a complete chapter on solar arcs, solar arcs to midpoints. Um, there's a branch of astrology, not very popular that I'm interested in called draconic astrology. There will be a chapter on draconic astrology. So, uh, it will be basically the same thing with, with three or four additional chapters. Okay. Brilliant. That's exciting. Um, and you've got a new website on the way that's called newwayastrology.com. Um, you also have a blog, which is newwayastrology.tumblr.com. And um, last year, Noel reached out and asked you to digitalize 18 of his favorite lectures and turn them into MP3s. And that's something that you have available for purchase, right? Yes, I do. Just email me, basilfarrington at gmail.com, and uh, I'll get you hooked up. Brilliant. Okay. And then, um, Kathy, your website is roseastrology.com. And one of your primary things is teaching uh, Noel's master's series course, right? Yes, Basil and I are both um, teaching that master's correspondence course. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And um, where, where can people go to find out more information about that? They just need to email me, email me personally. And then I do the yearly conferences, the Empowered Astrology Conference. Um, my next one's coming up March 11th of 2021. Crossing my fingers, we get a meet in person. Yeah, um, you had a funny, I didn't know this until this past week, but you mm-hmm. were actually, I thought Norwalk was one of the first uh, major conferences to go online, but in fact, your conference, and this was all mm-hmm. Noel Till students uh, mm-hmm. presenting lectures, but it was scheduled to take place in late March. Mm-hmm. And that's right when the country basically shut down. So you were actually one of the first astrology mm-hmm. conference that had, that had to move online as a result of that. Yeah, and it's no easy task, um, especially when the conference is just, I mean, I'm the only one on the contract. So you're liable for all the rooms, you're liable for you know the expense of the contract. Right. Um, and I was lucky enough to hit the timing where the hotel worked with me. But yeah, we we took it online. And it was really, really successful, and it it went just fine. And so we have 15 lectures, and that lecture series is still available. And all the information in in that conference is um, very practical for consultation astrologers. 
you know. Brilliant. So there's lectures mm -hmm. by you, by Basil, Matthew, mm -hmm. Wiemet, and a number of other. Elizabeth Grace mm -hmm. and Hiroki Nizato, who needs to be mentioned because he is now teaching Noel's material in Japan, and he's incredibly successful out there. He was Noel's interpreter when Noel would go to Japan. And so he interpreted well over, what was it, 100 or 200 um, consultations mm -hmm. live. And he's a brilliant astrologer. He's just incredible. Awesome. Yeah. I'll have to have him on at some point in the future mm -hmm. since there's lots of other things to follow up on. Mm -hmm. um, so recordings from that conference are available from the Empowered Astrology Seminar. How can people get a hold of those? Email me directly. Yeah. And what's your email address again? Roseastrology at yahoo.com. Yeah. Okay, Elizabeth got Grace it. did a few. I mean, so yeah, we have a good collection of, of um, and Matthew Wimet did a um, one on annual profections. Shout out to you. Brilliant. Um, yeah, I like, I like Matthew's work in synthesizing modern and traditional astrology. Mm -hmm. And you also, um, as we mentioned earlier in the show, you filmed a series um, with Noel of the Till Masterworks series, which was like a series mm -hmm. of DVDs. Um, and you still have uh, some of those left, and then you're going to be putting those into mm -hmm. some sort of digital format at some point as well. Mm -hmm. At some point, yeah, we're almost out of stock, but we still have them. Nine DVDs. Noel comes into your living room if you play it on your um, TV or your computer. Um, they're very good. They're very good, and it helps personalize the information because Noel's very poetic and a bit abstract, and some of the things he writes. Some people have to really think about what did he mean because he was a poetic man. So the DVDs make it simpler. Yeah, and I like that because you're the production quality, like the audio and the video is really good. And that's because your husband has a background, a professional background in mm -hmm. uh, production and, and audio video design. Yeah. So it's he nice does having. All my, yeah. Yeah, he does all my videos. We have a home studio, and I put out two videos a month, and he's my director, producer, editor. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, people can mm -hmm. find out more information about that at tillmasterwork.com, and then also you have a bunch mm -hmm. of previews where people can watch snippets from that um, on a YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash tillmasterwork, mm -hmm. and that has some great interviews that you did with him and other things like mm -hmm. that if people want to get a better sense for his personality and approach to astrology. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for joining me for this today. This is amazing. I can't believe how much we covered. I feel like we did our own like synthesis and counseling and astrology 800 page uh, marathon today. But um, yeah, thanks a lot for for joining me. I appreciate it. It's a joy. It's it's always a joy to talk about uh, Noel's work and and all of that. He outside of anybody named Farrington, he was one of the three most important people in my life, without a doubt. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and it, well, it's yeah. good to hear the, the personal connections that both of you had with him and history in the making in terms of the shaping and molding of the astrological tradition over the past few decades, um, not just through his work, but also through the, through the work of his students and collaborators and how that's continued on through both of you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, and thank, thank you, you for all you do, Chris. I mean, you're, you're doing a lot for the astrological community. Yeah, thanks for having time. this, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Um, well, thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. And thanks to all the patrons who support our work and are, make it possible that we can like send microphones out to get good audio and video. And uh, that's it for this episode. So we'll see you again next time. 
Thanks to the patrons who helped to support the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to patrons Christine Stone, Nate Craddock, Marin Altman, Arena Tudor, Thomas Miller, Bear River, Catherine Conroy, Michelle Marillat, and Kate Pallotta. As well as the AstroGold Astrology app available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, and the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs available at honeycomb.co. The production of this episode of the podcast is also supported by the International Society for Astrological Research, which is hosting a major astrology conference in Denver, Colorado, September 10th through the 14th, 2020. More information about that at isar2020.org. And finally, also Solar Fire Astrology Software, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount on that software. For more information about how to become a patron of the Astrology Podcast and help support the production of future episodes while getting access to subscriber benefits like early access to new episodes or other bonus content, go to patreon.com/astrologypodcast. 